It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock Podcast, the podcast about the beautiful club within the beautiful game, with co-hosts me, Russell Guyver, and Peter Marsh. Hey, Russ. Hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, yes. We're doing a later in the week one this week because there's plenty to pack in. We wanted to do a bit of a preview of Liverpool, so we've got Neil Atkinson uh, joining in a little bit later on. Uh, But to start off with, um, we're going to go through... Well, the, the earlier part of uh, of what we've not covered since last time, which is, of course, the Leicester game. Um, we didn't get the win that we wanted, which would have taken us above Spurs on goal difference with games in hand still. Um, and they have since won, which probably helped, actually, because they beat Fulham. And realistically, would we catch Tottenham? I don't know, maybe, maybe. Sure, they're not playing very well, frankly. Yeah, it's possible, it's possible. But we what might we have to, Liverpool and Chelsea have a good run. We might have to catch Spurs. Yeah, that's true. What we what we did need to do was to get a win at Leicester because we were, I think, bossing it by the looks of it from what I saw and heard. Um, but we came away with a two-all draw in the end. I wasn't there. I watched the extended highlights and I listened to the commentary at the time. Uh, Warren Aspinall was very animated, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure it's, he's the most... Um, it was a bit misleading, some of the stuff he was saying, put it that way. Um, however, you know, you've got to love him. But the person to speak to really about this is you, because you were at the game, um, yep. and you've got plenty to say on the matter, haven't you? Peter, yeah, I'm pretty really chill, to be honest. I'm still like, pretty relaxed on a Friday, you know, I don't, I, yeah. didn't, I, was, I wasn't really that bothered. This is know. why we haven't recorded till Friday, because we thought you'd be too angry. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not all about anger, but there's lots of positives, of course, from the weekend game. Tell us about it. How was it? Yeah, it was. One of those games you come away thinking, did we gain a point or lose two, really? It was obviously the fact we got an equaliser in the, basically the last minute of, the, of normal time. You kind of tend to say it's a point game, but given the way we dominated the second half, I mean, they barely got out of their half. Hmm. We really should have won, won the game. Um, yeah, it, we were denied a blatant penalty at one all. We were we missed, a, well, March missed, a, not a sitter, but he slipped a bit, but still should have scored at one all. Uh, we took the lead and looked comfortable and then conceded a pretty sloppy goal. Yeah, it was one of those games where we, in the way we've been playing recently, you would think we could have put it to bed, but we never did. And 
and Leicester obviously gained confidence from that and got the goal back. And yeah, I mean, their goal was second half and about against the run of players, you can think. I mean, they didn't really leave their half. They basically played 11 men behind the ball. To the point where Match Today was showing a clip of their, even their striker being so deep. And that was part of their problem. They couldn't get out of their half because even the striker, well, first of all, Vardy and then Daka couldn't actually, was actually so deep in their half that they didn't have anyone up front to aim to, to try and like, you know, kind of end the, you know, break up the play. Yeah, so, which, yeah I they, know they're a shadow of their former selves, but yeah. ironically, that is, that was their modus operandi when they yeah. won the league. I, I've never seen a team at home in the Premier League sit that deep and, even when winning, and they were doing it at one all in the second half. Yeah. So, and it was a I bit suppose. of a farcical first minute and a half or two minutes. We almost had the ball for two minutes in the first, like, from kickoff. And they just were trying to, like, sit off and not let us kind of, like, not try to attack our players. We just kept passing it back and forward. And we had the ball for like, the first, like, minute and 55 seconds without leaving our half, hardly, <laughs> and then lost it. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, I suppose it's symptomatic of where we're at now and also where Leicester are at, actually, and where Villa were at at the time when we played Villa, although they've improved a bit since and gone up a few places. Um, these sort of teams, these, these supposedly well-known names, uh, established clubs in the Premier League who are, um, effectively deferring to our style of football and they're negating what we're doing rather than trying to do their own game which is amazing um it's a compliment but it's also an irritation isn't it especially when we seem to consistently fail to get the number of points and the number of goals that we should do against sides like that it's it it makes for a bit of a worry we won't get too far ahead of ourselves but the games coming up are the sort of games where we might have further frustrations along similar lines our 10 home games are like that basically against teams yeah, I, mean, I don't think Fulham or Brentford will do that particularly because that's not in their style. But certainly six of the ten are teams, you know, a bit below us, and we, yeah. you know, we uh, with Leicester. I know, I, know, I know Leicester, as I said, their mo was was counter attacking football uh, in some respects when they won the title, but and, and what they've done since. But um, but actually, they are quite an attacking team as well, and um, they seem to have lost their mojo. They were the sort of team that we would have benefited from playing yeah. away to before. Um, and from what you've said, it seems like that is very much not the case now. Um, well, I mean, I mean, they may all be different normally, but certainly against us, they they sat back and didn't offer anything second half. First half was a bit more even, actually. I'd say both teams scored in t- at a period when they were slightly off, slightly less effective. Brighton, well, we weren't having a great spell when Matoma scored out of pretty much nothing. And then yeah. their goal came when we were, we were looking in quite good control of the game. And it was a bit of a break, so... Both teams scored maybe on the other side was a bit on in the attendancy. Um, but second half, yeah, I mean, they barely left their half. They had those two, and they had a, a free kick at the end for Madison, which had never been a free kick anyway. And um, certainly, Casado was clearly fouled in the build-up. It would have been the Elson not kind of kicking the teeth for him an appalling referee if we'd... we'd uh... Didn't we... Um, wasn't there something to do with a, a goal kick that should have been a corner as well, leading to one of the goals? Apparently, I, I hadn't noticed that one, to be honest, at the time. But yeah, someone, I've so seen that they, in the build-up to their... Yeah. Their, their first, whatever, yeah, or their second, was it one of them anyway? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll go through it goal by goal in a moment. But um, one thing really to mention is um, in terms of the um, the lineups, we had Danny Welbeck started, didn't he, for this one, and Evan Ferguson was on the bench. Now, my, my thing about the way teams sit deep and have a low block and are really hard to break down is that Evan Ferguson seems to be a potential partial, at least, solution to that because he's got it all in terms of he, he can ruffle feathers and shake things up in a tighter defensive area intelligent movements um physicality being good facing or backing away from goal uh facing away from goal um 
seems like he would have been ideal for this. Maybe we didn't anticipate they'd be so defensive. I don't know. But um, it, was it a bit of a misstep by Roberto to not start him in this game? I, I, think, so, no. forward, we? I, I think he needs to kind of not play him all the time. I think he needs to be kind of, hmm. kind of in, you know, put, played sometimes from the start, sometimes from the bench. And, and I think it was a game where I think Welbeck would have did pretty well. I mean, Welbeck should have won a penalty, it has to be remembered. If it hadn't been for a dreadful refereeing and VAR decision, he'd have won a penalty. He, you know, he, man. Early, he, he worked pretty hard and I, I don't think Welbeck did much wrong. Ferguson might not have been so effective if he started and, you know, whereas actually, you know, Welbeck had just scored against Liverpool as well. I, I don't think it's particularly, it was, it was a mistake. I think it was the right thing. Walking to the ground, I thought that might happen and was pleased it did. Um, and yeah, Ferguson's still a decent sub to bring on, so. Hmm. And we're going to talk about him a lot more uh, a little bit later on. Uh, absolutely. Um, no, it's just more of a poser of a question, really, than a, a criticism. I think they've, I think, got to, um, they've got to mix it up for him a little bit. They can't, he can't yeah. start every game straight away. At, and I know people will say, well, you know, people like Rooney did and that sort of thing. But, you know, it, it's, it, you have to kind of, you know, you don't want to end up with him, you know, kind of being, you know, in a year's time, being completely shat, you know, broken by playing every game from the start and being in there. I hmm. think it's the right decision. And I think they, they will then kind of look at, you know, maybe he'll start Sunday and, yeah, well, back against Bournemouth, maybe like that. And, yeah. yeah, it's a good option. And it's good that we've got the option of bringing someone on either either one of them off the bench now. Yeah. Well, let, let's say this chronologically. You mentioned about being difficult to break down Leicester. Well, it sounded like it was a little bit difficult getting into the ground as well, Peter. Rant number one. Back to you, sir. Um, it's, it's, not really, it's not really a rant, but it was a quite entertaining uh, security <laughs> at Leicester. They had... I mean, even at quarter past two, when, or 20 past two, when we got in, there was quite a long queue and it wasn't moving at all. It's because basically they were searching everyone's pockets. They, they ever, everyone had to empty their pockets like at an airport. And yeah, my dad had to, had to have his, take his hat off to check there wasn't any, a lot of people were as well to check there wasn't anything, <laughs> sort of weapons or something or drugs in there. I don't know. I've no and idea what they were looking for. Not but ironically, they didn't search hat. my bag, weirdly. It's, it was like, yeah, they, they searched like all my, all my pockets, everything like that. Under your fingernails. <laughs> you got in trouble if you didn't take everything out of the pockets, but yeah, they didn't search my bag. And there was a, there was a head steward there who was decidedly pissed off and grumpy. <laughs> and he definitely was not like on our customer service calls. I love the idea that they're checking your fingernails and, and seeing what you've got hidden behind a, a bit of fluff in your pocket or whatever, but they're not checking the bag. Yeah. I know it would be the whole I think, hiding... they think they were checking bags. They just happened to miss mine. I didn't but point you... it out to them as well, that they just ignored me. So. They were determined not to check you, Peter. Yeah. You were clearly angelically innocent, aren't you? Yeah, they probably took the view if I was offering a chance for them to search it. They probably didn't have anything in it. But, yeah. Hmm. you know, next time I'll take my nuclear warheads in, you know. <laughs> So let, let's look at it then, goal by goal. So um, obviously it started well in terms of um, we got the, the first goal. Um, I think we started quite brightly in general. Didn't we? Well, I think Leicester were, were on the front foot, but in terms of the overall um, balance of uh, key chances and everything else, we we started well, and it was a great goal as well from Mittener, wasn't it? Which our top corner is classic, cutting inside. The, the beauty of him is. He's dangerous either way around. If you if you let him go down the line, he can do something from there. If you let him inside, he'll cut inside and do a Mares style goal from the opposite side to where Mares normally plays. Uh, it, very similar, actually. I think there's a lot of similarities with the, the way those two players play from their respective sides of the pitch. Um, and it was a beautiful finish, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, credit also to Stupino, not not just for his pass to the ball, but also the run he made as well. Because he's really good at that now. He's kind of like. A few times he's made runs where they distracted the defence and got on the overlap and Mitoma, the Mitoma again, can then touch inside and 
Yeah, I mean, if he didn't have anyone near him, but there's still a lot of work to do to put that finish in the top corner. And yeah, I mean, Leicester, the wall didn't stand any chance. Yeah, it was a brilliant goal. And then, yeah, ironically, it went pretty much downhill from there because Lallana goes down. Yeah, we had four blows in a row, didn't we? But Lallana went down injured and he has been quite instrumental and influential. Yeah, in I mean, I, I genuinely think we're... And I, and I, and I think they play Grosh at right-back because they want Lallana in there as well. Yeah. Um, and they want they can't drop McAllister or Casada, they can't drop March or Matoma, but they've got to have they want to have both Grosh and Alana. And that's why Grosh has been moved to right back, because they want to fit all these players in. And obviously you've got a striker as well. So in order to do that, you have to play arguably your best attacking midfielder at at right back. And mm. um yeah, and it, he he was a real miss. And it didn't help that Veltman had arguably about his weakest game in an Albion shirt. He was really he struggled a bit. Which will actually come on to the second of their goal as well, because he committed yeah. himself a bit to their first goal. Um, and that was where they got in down the wing. And from there, we were always a bit diving in and desperate. But he was the one, he, he didn't back off, he didn't intercept, he kind of just kind of just pushed himself a little bit too far forward. And the guy got in behind him, and then Nick Barnes got in behind him. And then from there, we were, it was like people throwing themselves at the ball desperately, and it just happened to land to their player. And may have been a penalty in the end, it's hard to tell, but there was like definitely. I reckon, uh, well, two things to say. I think we had four blows in a row because I think we had Milana going off injured, the two goals which were avoidable from a defensive point of view, and in between which we had the penalty incident, which we'll talk about in a minute. In terms of that that first Leicester goal, yeah, three moments where we could have cleared it. I think the first one, I do think that we probably, well, with a proper and reasonable balanced refereeing decision we would have probably got away with that because I think it bounced up off a part of his body I couldn't quite work out where somewhere in his upper leg I think onto his arm and his arm was in a natural position in terms of he was sliding so his arm would be out so he might have got away with that side of it possibly but who knows but yeah we didn't quite clear it after that I mean for the moment it felt when he committed himself we we were a man down at the back and that was where the the goal I mean it's very unlike Beltman I mean I'm not going to berate him he's had so few bad, get what I would say, poor games since. Hmm. since he, but he he came on, and I thought, well, uh, my dad and I initial re- reaction was, oh, that's fine. Grosh moves further forward. We'll miss Lalana, but actually, Beltman slots in. That's no problem. But he really struggled. I thought right back actually, and yeah, it was I would say was probably the main fault for the first goal because everything else after that was a bit desperate and a bit kind of like throwing yourself at the ball. Yeah, and yeah, it's just one of those days, wasn't it? Um, of course, it's all Brighton scores because it's too ironic a name not for him to get involved in major statistical uh, factors of this match. Um, he'd just come on as well, hadn't he? Because, of course, yeah. we had this weird thing when we'd scored our goal. Um, I think Mitama or somebody inadvertently minorly injured um, Caicedo during the goal celebration. Caicedo was fine. But then, of course, Lalana went down injured at the same time, pretty much, as well. And then Leicester had a player injured as well. So it was all a bit bizarre. Um, so Albrighton had only been on for, I think, 10 minutes or something like that, hadn't he, when that equaliser then subsequently went in. Um, so that was a bit frustrating because it's a player that wouldn't have been on the pitch had it not been for cir- other circumstance. And would he have, would, would whoever was on the pitch in his place have hit it the same way? No, Bright, Bright, or however you pronounce his name. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so that was that. Then, of course, um, Leicester did go on to go 2-1 up with another defendable goal, really. But we could have been the team to go 2-1 up. And we should have been the team at least to be a penalty kick away from going 2-1 up. And with McAllister on his recent form in terms of penalties and with our general form, you feel like he would have, 
he's in the zone at the moment, isn't he? And you would have felt he would have buried it if he'd have taken a penalty. I've watched this incident over and over again at the start of the week, and I cannot for the life of me understand how Lee Mason managed to not give it or not send um, the referee who was the referee who was generally dreadful anyway. We'll come into that. I mean, and he's been he was dreadful at Charleston as well, and he missed a penalty shot at Fulham apparently. He's down into all yeah, from VAR. So he obviously had done is it Bramhall? Um, Thomas Bramhall. And he was, he was dreadful. I mean, Leicester didn't have a booking all game. And yet they're constant fouling. Vardy about four or five fouls. Montuelos had like three or four fouls. And no one, no booking at all. And then he booked with Hannister at the end for when he should have given the free kick for us for Casado foul, being fouled anyway. Hmm. He was just, I mean, he was dreadful. And yeah, it, it was, yeah, symptomatic that he'd missed the penalty. But it was, I can almost understand how he missed it. Although I don't think he should have done. What is annoying is that Lee Mason did, did not look. I mean, that match today zoomed in a bit, and you clearly see Welbeck pushes the ball past the player and gets caught on the foot. And VAR must have that view. They must be able to do that. Yeah, there were, there were look at the TV, there were three views that were given. Um, the first two were fairly inconclusive, although you can strongly suspect that their foul was a foul. still looked a penalty in the first two. Still but... looked at, yeah. The third one, there's one one particular, well, second angle does does look pretty obvious. The third angle that was shown, which presumably the referee did see, uh, or sorry, the, the VAR did see, um, shows it very clearly. A yeah. case of the, the, the defender put steps forwards past where Welbeck's foot is, no contact with the ball, and his other foot then swings in and makes very clear and obvious contact. Yeah. In a and that's, that's the thing. It is clear and obvious. Yeah. It really was. And so the only logical thing you can think about why Lee Mason didn't give that is because he hates Brighton because of what happened in that West Brom game. There is no other reason how a career is over, Peter, on that there, West there Brom There is no game. other reason how a referee can miss that on VAR. It do you know what? Decision and, do you know what? Lee Mason's career ended with that West Brom game, and rightly yeah. so, because he made a mess. Regardless of whether it was right decisions or wrong decisions, he made a mess of yeah, the scenario. And he did get the wrong decision, because I, I'm still to this day saying that that ball, I, I'm not convinced that, that ball hadn't crossed the no. line when the whistle was blown. You hear the audio, but the audio doesn't necessarily match the video to start with. And secondly, it looked like it was split second. Yeah, at the very least. So the, the the goal was already going to be scored at the point when the whistle went. The goalkeeper would not have saved it. And he'd given the go-ahead for that free kick to be yeah. taken. So on that basis, Lee Mason's career might be over because of, in terms of on-field refereeing, because of that incident. I don't know if that was the only factor or not. But if it is, or if it is... It's over pretty quickly after that, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and that's not, not down to Brighton. That's down to no, hmm, Lee Mason. <laughs> You know, why has he got a grudge with us? He's the one that screwed up. To our detriment. Appears to have. To I can't, our detriment as well. For the life of me, understand other than that, other than having a grudge against us, why he would not yeah. send that back. It I'm, was I'm, such a blatant I'm, penalty. I'm calling him out on it, Peter. He 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 must have done it through biased reasons. If, yeah. he, if he disagrees with that, and he's listening to this podcast, as I'm sure every referee does <laughs> of a Friday evening or whenever, whenever we release it, I'm just, what what possible argument could he have to say it was anything other than a grudge? Because that's all I can think. That's the first thing I thought yeah. of. Because he's made he he's not seen something obvious. Yeah. Everyone else, I know Lineker made a slight tongue in cheek joke. Oh, that was that was in debate. But yeah, you know, it was. But then even, then even he admitted it was a penalty. I mean, yeah. 
I'd say Leicester fans are missing of the penalty and their justification being what happened last season at the Amex when they got to allow. But none of them have said it wasn't a penalty. You know, it's literally like everyone on reflection. I mean, seen the replay. And if it had been a live game where the referee had missed it, I'd have been like, well, he was poor anyway. But, you know, fair enough. But with VAR, you've got no excuse for missing that. It was an absolutely clear and obvious error. The referee obviously thought that he got the ball or thought he didn't touch Welbeck. Which, I mean, why Welbeck would have gone down? I mean, he had the ball and he was going past the defender. I don't understand why he'd have gone down otherwise. But yeah. And he even got the decision wrong for a corner. He gave a corner, despite the fact that March kicked it against Welbeck, which was... <laughs> yes, that's true. Yes, we shouldn't have had a corner. That's, that's for sure. That's the one decision that shouldn't have been given. I, I think at one point, I think we're probably going to get Raymond the Gent on to, to talk about his thoughts on refereeing and um, laws and what, what should be done and shouldn't be done. I think we might do a little bit of a chat on that, maybe where there's an international break or something else, I'm not sure. But um, essentially, um, I think you have to wonder what's going on there. What, what's going on with the decisions? Yeah. Why? And what's the accountability as well? Lee, yeah. Lee Mason has, uh, has um, not flagged that up to the referee. Um, one of the proposals that might be discussed on said future podcast, and it's, it's probably been discussed in general, is about accountability from refereeing decisions. Should they be made to speak at some point over the weekend yeah. afterwards? Now, I'd be really interested to know what Bramhall would have said in the aftermath of that game, whenever that might be, whether it's in the heat of the moment or two days later or whatever else. What would he have said about that? I, I guess he would have said, if he could see it was obvious, he would have said but he couldn't see it from his angle, which would be a, a, probably a, a cop-out if that wasn't true, but it would also be potentially an understandable answer. So, uh, so think- I think we should. I think the clear and obvious thing needs to be scrapped. It's laughable. We've had so many decisions this year. You know, the whole... I mean, how on earth that Rashford wasn't clearly and obviously offside in that goal against City? How is it that Maguire wasn't clearly and obviously offside and interfering with play against us when they scored their goal. How was it not a clear and obvious error by when Welbeck was shoved in the back by Masters at Old Trafford? The Southampton Saints game as well, the weekend. Yeah. Was something, uh, yeah, and Villa home. How was that not a clear and obvious error? Yeah. He, March poked the ball, got in ahead of um, Dean and kept, poked the ball past him. So they need to scrap this, basically, get rid of it, ditch it, and they need to have like a more kind of a lower level of kind of thing. The referee is making a decision, and then may, and then referees then don't have to t- overturn it. If they go and see it, if Bramwell then goes back and say, looks at it and goes like, fair enough, I've got it right, it's wrong. But if he did, then that's up to him, and he'll take the stick for it. But I mean, the simple fact is that Deserbi has uh, had a go at the referee, and there's no sign he's been punished yet, as far as I can see, which tells you everything you need to know, really. I mean. Yeah, the he got a yellow card, didn't he? And also the, the assistant coach at Leicester. Who, yeah, but he hasn't, he hasn't been like, you know, for what he said after the match, he's not been, you know, as far as I know, he's not been oh, charged yeah. with anything, which, yeah. says, which says everything you need to know. I mean, the, the um, yeah, the referee at the time lost control, really. I mean, there was all sorts of arguments. and My, my thing with this is, what, what bugs me about this, uh, the whole thing about referees' accountability, should they talk <laughs> afterwards? Someone might have an argument to, quite an understandable argument, to say the contrary, say, no, it's too awkward and they haven't been assessed yet and there's got to be some period of reflection or whatever else they might say. OK, fair enough. But why does De Zerbe have to do an interview post-match? Assuming that he's not been uh, signed off with COVID or, or already suspended, he, it's his responsibility post-match to then appear and explain things 
when even if it's an hour or two later, it's still pretty damn emotive. And he's going to be accountable for what he, his reactions are on the touchline and for what his reactions are in the post-match interview. And yet, apparently, it seems un, inappropriate for referees to, to be accountable and to say what they think about games afterwards. But all of these decisions, if Deserby says something out of turn, through his passion, through his, his moment, moment of weakness, as they might say it, it could be, of, of saying what he really thinks when he's supposed to be diplomatic, there are going to be consequences for that. He could get fines, monetary consequences. He could have a ban from the touchline, or he could have um, a suspended sentence where he's then carrying something into another another game in terms of what consequences may occur. He's accountable yeah. during and after the game. Why aren't the referees? If if they're not going to be accountable, why should Deserby or anyone else have to be interviewed? They They should have yeah. the option in my opinion, if the referees are not going to be interviewed. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think there's a lot... The situation's really, it's a little bit getting a bit irritating now because a lot's made of VAR and stuff. But actually, it's not VAR's fault. It's Lee hmm. Mason's fault. It's the fact that it's the same incompetent arseholes who, who were incompetent before and then running VAR as well. I think yeah. there should be separate VAR officials. Not, I mean, people say ex-players. I don't think it should be ex-players. But I hmm. think the skills to be a VAR official... Are probably quite a lot different to the skills of being a referee. You know, they you don't need the fitness for starters. You don't need to be fit enough to run up and down the pitch and that sort of thing. You don't need to be, you know, kind of. So basically, all you have to do is look at a screen and decide the rules. I think they should be training new separate VAR officials who actually are Specialist. just VAR officials. Specialists, yeah. Why not? Yeah, exactly. The isolation between the two bodies, you know, the the referees. Uh, PGMOL, whatever, and these VAR guys, they could be under the PGMOL umbrella, but they should be completely in isolation. So they don't have accountability. Of like, you know, a young referee trying to overrule a senior referee and stuff like that. It's like, yeah. you know, when someone like Michael Oliver's referee, and you must be a bit of pressure from some young referee looking at VAR and trying to second guess their decision because, you know, it's like, well, what do I know? I've been in Premier League for two seasons and he's been like in the World Cups, so he's been like, here and there. I mean, even if Michael Oliver's not like that, which I'm not saying he is, but you know, kind of, it must mentally be like that for them, and it must be tough. And yeah, I, I think they should be scrapping using professional referees as as PGMOL uh, monitors and VAR. And PGMOL, by the way, are terrible. I mean, what's the bloody point of them? They're just there to protect referees who don't a lot of the time don't deserve it. It's an old boys club, isn't it? What what irritates me is, and we've we've talked many times about Dermot Gallagher with the ref watch on Sky, which I haven't watched for weeks because it winds me up too much. But also, you've got um, Clattenburg makes a mixture of comments, some of some of which are pertinent, spot on, other others are not. You've got Peter Walton, who seems like he's a nice guy, and yet and he's quite affable. Uh, so he's he's got that TV personality element, but he 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 just doesn't make decisions or, or comments. Yeah, trust, I agree with a man who gave a penalty to Samson from three yards outside the area. Exactly. So, you know, guys, the idea that he's a, you know, a judge of anyone when he was shit himself is ironic. Yeah. So again, it's this circle of referees, and yeah. I, I think those guys, whether they're working or whether they've retired, seem to still have be of, in and of the same opinion which is that they, they'll, they'll decide what they want to decide rather than what they should decide. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all in favour of a completely separate body to manage the VAR side of things. Yeah. I still believe that VAR, VAR, whatever you want to call it, has a part to play, potentially. 
I think it's on its last legs as far as the fans' toleration levels. I don't are. think it'll go though. I don't see any way that they'll get it. It won't go. It. Yeah, it won't go. And, and, then, and I think we need to modify. It. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a competent bloke in charge who wasn't like well either anti Brighton or basically blind at the weekend. Hmm. VAR would have worked. It would yeah. have been literally seen as, as as what VAR was brought in for. Was Keep to overrule it. that decision. Keep it, but make it better. Make it how it's yeah. supposed to bloody be in the first place, which is to improve the ratio of good decisions. Yeah. yeah. Somehow some managed to make it lower. Which yeah. Considering you're getting someone else watching it separately, it's quite yeah. impressive. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. The one thing I do think is with this World Cup technology with the offside, rightly or wrongly, whatever the, the, the flaws that may be in that system, I do think something like that would be good in terms of um, just calling a spade a spade saying, right, this according to the graphic, this is right or wrong. And you haven't got any debatability about that. It's it's not subjective, it's objective according to the system they've in, in, imposed. Because then you have got a by the book thing, whether it's right or wrong. You've got it it's it's just a clear dividing line. But that the question is that if you do that, do you need linesmen? What do they actually offer? They never flag for free kicks. Quite mm. often they even flag for throw ins. You know, yeah. it's like, so would you be better off with the, all the goal line stuff being managed by, I know, technology, that sort of thing, or having a referee in each half or something like that, you know, something, having two two officials rather than three, having a referee in one half, referee in the other half, so they can keep up with play more effectively, and offside just solely managed by technology, and it just beeping referees, like, watch if it's offside. There would be certain people against that notion, uh, people working as linesmen and linesmen. But what's the point? Yeah. They, never, they never flag for... Much at all, really. Free kicks. Yeah. They, I mean, that Villa game when 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 referee missed that blatant penalty on March. Trossard was then hurled to the ground right in front of the linesman. I'm a follow up to that, and he gave a throw into Villa, and it was like he's literally a yard away from you. What is the point of your existence if you can't? And he's made two that? bad decisions in in yeah. So even if we didn't get the penalty, which we should have got, we should have had a free kick in a dangerous position. Instead, he goes and like gives the yeah gives them a throw in, and it's just like well. What is the purpose of your linesman if you're not supposed to flag when the foul happens one yard away from you? Yeah. Well, we could go I'm on not, and on about this. Hold on, he grudges or anything like that. <laughs> we, we probably shouldn't go on about it anymore, but we could go on about it for hours. But the decision wasn't given. It was a, a bla- it, was, it was robbery, basically. We can't guarantee he would have scored the penalty, but I'm confident he probably would have done. So we didn't go too one We deserve the chance anyway. I mean, even if, it, even if he missed exactly. it. You know, we robbed then. of the chance. Yeah. Exactly. And then if even if um, even if he doesn't score, you wonder how that might change the game in general. You know, you never know. But the thing is, the game went on. Leicester scored another defendable goal. I, I have to say, Van Hecker was to blame here a little bit because I don't think he 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 was looking. I watched the replay of it when the ball was coming in. Um, was it a corner? I think it was a corner, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Van Hecker is not focusing on his man behind him for the whole time. Now, I don't want to call him out too much because I think he's a good prospect and I really hope he does well and I wish him the best of luck. And I think it was good that we played him and he is improving and he's getting better. But in that particular moment, he needed to do at least one or two checks over his shoulder, see where his man was. Because when the ball came in, it came in at sort of waist height, chest height, somewhere like that. He took a, a vain swing at it, didn't get contact with it. And then was it Dakar that got Barnes. the uh, oh Barnes yeah sorry Barnes that got the connection and and finished it off but he had a clear run at the ball because Van Hecker was out of the equation now I 
I, I think it's an experience, actually, to be honest, in this particular occasion. And I think he will learn from it. And I don't think it's a, a big issue to talk about too much. But it was a it was an avoidable goal, wasn't it? So, I mean, I, I was in favour of playing Van Hecker over Webster at the weekend, mainly because we know what Webster can do. He often struggles when he comes back from injury. We need yeah. to, I mean, if we're not, and I, I know we've got a great chance of, a chance of Europe, and we've got this and that. But if we're not going to try a player like Van Hecker in a winning team, when we're you know, basically safe. I mean, we're not going to go down at the halfway point of the season. If we're not going to give him a run here when, when Colwell's out, then when are we going to do it? Are it's one of the Ferguson thing, isn't it? Him then, we haven't played him at all. For, for all of his, um, his, his faults, and I think there's a few of them uh, for a very successful manager, Alex Ferguson would do that. He would blood youngsters in game. Yeah. Yeah, you know, add, it, add it, to the winning equation. Exactly, you know, one in a winning team and that sort of thing. I think he, you know, he, on the whole, he did okay. He made one mistake in the first half when he came in and committed himself and they had two on one and should have done much better. Barnes passed the Vardy behind him pretty much and he, he stopped. And then one in the second half with that. And I, they both, yeah, kind of positioning and, and knowledge. I also would say that leaving him one on one against one, one of their best players at the back post probably wasn't a good idea as well, generally. We shouldn't have. All, everyone obviously went one way, and they left him isolated, which isn't the right thing to do with a young defender. I think. Hmm. I would say yeah. that there's, a, there's an element of blame for everyone there. They didn't just, you know, it, it, they shouldn't have left him basically on his own at the back post with a with a defender with an attacker like yeah. Barnes. That's true. That's true. It's, uh, there is responsibility all round. My hmm. other concern was I don't know if you remember remember the build up to that goal. There's a ball round the back, and Vardy got round the back and eventually broke for a corner, and Villa did that as well. We do play such a high line that T, and we haven't got that much pace at the back. And mm. it does, it is a slight concern that teams can turn us quite quickly. Both things goals against Villa were like that, that we were turned and, you know, people got in on the back and don't go over penalty from that. And then also, I think the second goal was equivalent like that as well. Do you think, think the centre back is the issue there in terms of the pace? I mean, on the, on the face of it, it's only really a supernova who's got any sort of pace in the back line. Grosh, Seth Beltman aren't that quick. Dunk's not that quick. Obviously, Lamptey is, but then he's not, not playing. Is it? So yeah. it is a slight, unless Lamptey plays, we do lack pace generally at the back, which is a problem. And we do play a pretty high line, even more so under Deserby. We played it pretty high line and we get under Potter, but we played even higher line under Deserby, especially when we're basically, been, Leicester barely got out their half in, in uh, all game on Saturday. So, second half on Saturday. So, I mean, I think, I think there are concerns and there are issues. We're going to concede more goals as a result, probably. Um, and it probably isn't the ideal time in a sense to bring Van Hecker in there because he'd have been more secure under Potter or under Hewton because we played a better a line and maybe he's more suited him. But he's got to learn. And I think you know, there, there were definitely enough signs that he had promise and he's a decent player. He won Player of the Year at Blackburn next, last year. He deserves a chance and I will give him a run. Yeah. We know what Webster can do. We know he probably will have a few games before he gets back. He probably won't get back to his best self until Cold War comes back pretty much. So why not give Van Hecker a chance and give him a go? play him and see what happens. And the worst happens probably won't be in that much worse than Webster who struggles early when he comes back from injury. So, you know, give him a few games. Colwell struggled the first game or two, I thought, and then really got into it and looked brilliant against Liverpool, for example. So, mm. he's our, and Van Hecker is our future, whereas like Colwell obviously isn't going to stay. So, we need to kind of, and if Van Hecker is half, is does half decently, I would stick him in the rest of the season. I wouldn't yeah. take, put Colwell back in because we've got a plan for the future. We can't just like keep you know, we can't basically make Chelsea players better because they're bloody annoying. And it, well, exactly. I mean, I, boringly, I agree with everything you just said. There's no contention here. I, I, I agree with you. We, I we don't like. 
<laughs> we we don't like loans, do we? We 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 don't want to develop other players, as you said, unless there's some sort of potential for us to sign him. And it seems that Chelsea do rate him, despite having signed players to go ahead of him in the squad. Um, they do genuinely seem to want to keep hold of him. So on that basis, it's not a problem really. You know, let's um, let's see. It, once everyone's fit, it'll be interesting to see who's picked. That's going to be the interesting thing. And it um, may depend on whether we've dropped off a little bit with Colwell out and we've not, we're maybe down in ninth or like that and a bit away from the top seven, or if we're in the top seven, if we're in, if we're still in with a good chance of Europe into like one or two competitions, I think probably that Colwell will play because yeah. we'll want to give it a, our best go and he is the best option. And he was brilliant that Liverpool game, for example, weeks ago. But if we, if we maybe dropped a little bit off and, you know, we're not, we're a bit out of touch, we might keep Van Hecker in for a bit longer and, yeah. Peter, we're, we're going to go on to talk about the glorious equaliser in a moment, but let's pause the Leicester review for a minute because I want to bring in some other aspects here, largely to do with Roberto De Zerbi. Um, first of all, something that we could have covered before and didn't, you may have seen it on one of the WhatsApp groups, um, the Charlton game, which we, we all attended, um, where we lost on, as you mentioned, Bramhall. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bramhall. You helped referee, uh, to, to get us, uh, knocked out. Um, that particular game, there's one, one thing I wanted to, to flag up, which is from quite a while ago, but I think it, it, it really is worthy of mention. Um, somebody posted a message that had come from a Charlton athletic fan who had attended the, the game with his grandson who is disabled. And it just said the, the following. I'm going to read this out to you. One of one of a few things, the, the, the reasons why you've just got to fall completely in love with Roberto De Zerbi. Listen to this. It says, um, this is a Charlton fan. He says, I just wanted to tell everyone about the penalty shootout between Charlton and Brighton last night. Obviously, it's 21st of December, League Cup game. Um, yeah, League Cup game. Um, I have a handicapped grandson I'd taken his wheelchair to matches, and as the shootout was about to begin, we couldn't see a thing um, where we were because of the, everybody milling around by the dugout area. I pushed my grandson towards the Brighton dugout technical area in the hope of a better view. Despite the importance of the moment for the Brighton manager, Roberto De Zerbi, he could see that we were Charlton supporters with our red and white hats and scarves, and he made sure that we joined his management staff in front of the hoardings so that my grandson could see the shootout. Mr. Mr. Zerby, as he calls him, um, even crouched down so that my grandson could see the players approaching the halfway line to take their turn for each penalty. Brighton fans, you have an absolute gent in charge of the playing side of the club. I thanked him profusely at the time for his kindness and want to post this to thank him again. So thanks, capital letters, from Grandad Wainwright and Albie Sargent, it's so nice to report on an event so positively when not all football stories read like this one. Please share this as much as you like, and hopefully it will make it to Brighton eventually. So I'm doing that now. Um, that's out, Obviously, that's out of date from about a month ago, but nonetheless, the sentiment endured, aren't they? That's one thing we can absolutely love Roberto De Zerbi for. I've got to say that's that's really out of, out of the... Um, the obligation field, isn't it? Completely. You know, he, he's possibly distracting himself from a major scenario in a major game for his team. And yeah, he's happy to, to go the extra mile for someone else. We're not completely surprised, are we, based on what he's done with 
his no, friends so actually, who were attacked and the Ukraine stuff. the man who stayed in Donetsk until all his players had left and, and uh, yeah, kind of uh, wouldn't go to Bologna as manager because his friend had been sacked and he'd had cancer or whatever sort of thing. And it, it, it fits with the man that we know he is. And, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I I love the Zerbi in a way that I never love Potter. I never, you know, I mean, I've been only listening to the show, know that I was never fully on the Potter, you know, kind of. He, and, and it was only the last six months to me that he really had the results to back up maybe the football he had, but to me, a lot of the time the football wasn't that great anyway. Whereas De Zerbi, he's he's reckless in his in the footballing way in a sense, but he it's just so good to watch and it's just we just attack with such verb and he is just such a I, I love the fact we've got a manager who's passionate now as well. You know, I mean, I'm sure Potter and Hewton were very passionate in their own ways, but. They didn't show it. And the fact that he was like abused, not abused, but having a go at the referee and wanted to talk about it the week last weekend was brilliant. And I love that because, frankly, I want to hear the referee, the manager stag off the referee. You know? Not in a yeah. kind of like rude way, not in a kind of going too far like Poyet sometimes did, but in a kind of like, how do we not get a penalty there sort of thing, which is what they should be questioning. Because if we don't question it, then it looks like we're too passive about the whole thing. Yeah. And, and, and referees will think they can walk over us in yeah. terms of making decisions with no accountability from our side. And then that's and an then issue. The video of him with the second goal was epic. I mean, that was fantastic reaction. Well, this is what I wanted to say as well, was his touchline antics. There were, there were two major moments. One was he got the yellow card, complaining about the penalty that should have been given. You want to see that. You don't mind him getting a yellow card. Quite honestly, I think every single Albion fan would be happy to say yellow card well, well achieved. Yeah, my dad and I were discussing it, actually. Do you reckon there's a, a similar to a... a, a, a to the players, if a manager gets five yellow cards, he gets a ban. Oh, I don't know. That's a very I, good I, question. I didn't know either. We were discussing it the other day, and I, I, I'm um, not deserve he's going to get that, but I wonder if that's the case, if there's like a, a kind of disciplinary process, if you get like a certain number of yellow cards. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's not the case. There's no reason for it not to be the case. I've never heard of a manager getting five yellow cards, but <laughs> I wonder if it is the case if that happens. Well, I think we might be about to find out this, right? <laughs> Although, no, it has to be 10 now by this point in the season, doesn't it? Because we're past the watermark of halfway. But nonetheless, I mean, yeah, there were, there were two moments on the touchline. One was that yellow card scenario. Quite frankly, I applauded for getting a yellow card there. Uh, Leicester's assistant got one as well, for what that's worth. But, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to argue your case. You've got to fight your side of the equation, haven't you? So I'm I'm fine with that. And the celebration for the goal, I mean, we saw one at Liverpool, was it Liverpool? Well, a very animated one that got shown a load of times on social media. This was the same. It was a last minute, well, fairly late equaliser. Yeah, it was about 89. We, to be honest, we'd kind of, I'd kind of given up at that point. It didn't look like it was, I think it was like the last five, 10 minutes, I was like, I don't think it's going to be one of those days, you know, ball, every ball in the box was bouncing to them. Every kind of like mm. touch was like, but the problem, as I showed him today, was that they had 11 men behind the ball. They had no outlet, which meant that every, we just kept coming. And eventually, it was a fantastic ball. It was a bit of a scrappy kind of yeah, engagement in the middle. Grosh tried a clever flick, didn't work, but then won the ball back. But then it poked through to McAllister, and it bounced. And then Matoma did really well to flick it wide. And a brilliant cross for Superman. But the run from Ferguson was just... I mean, he, he didn't look like he had any chance to do it. And they kind of ran perfectly to it and headed it. I mean... It literally had to be exactly there to go into the into the corner. Yeah, if you, if, you, perfect if, you go, if you go back to the Widdine days, could you imagine a, a scenario where there was such a slick build-up, ball down the line, a really searing cross in that was would 
almost always have been far too pacey and direct and accurate for any other player at that level. And for him to then have to still use his strength, um, directional um, abilities as well, he, he had to do all the work on that header still, didn't he? He yeah, had a, a small was, window of opportunity and he had to get power on it and he had to get direction on it. I thought that was a superb header. Possibly and, one of the best I've ever seen, actually. It's been said a lot, but the fact, the maturity to just, rather than going absolutely mental, which is what I would have done in that situation at 18 or or even at, at 40, if you had done that, he basically just picked the ball up and ran back to the halfway line. He'd been doing it for years and he, you know, because we want the win. And it was, yeah, it was really, really mature bit of play. And I, yeah, I mean, he, he looks a real prospect. Doesn't mean it was a wrong decision to not pick him from the start. Of the I think it probably was the right decision. I think they've got to use him sparingly, you know, start him and then maybe put him in a bench every last half hour and then start him the next game and then alternate it. I don't want to overdo it for him, especially because we've got a lot of games coming up. Hmm. And then the referee almost like completely compounded his awful performance. Well, he partly did by booking McAllister, the one bloody player he booked all day, when he let them get left to get away with constant fouling and, you know, kind of constant, like, cynical fouls and stuff. Barney about four or five fouls, I think, in the game. And he, or it was like two or three, probably, then two or three he should have given, and he didn't. Um, there was a time McAllister got elbowed in the face that he managed to miss and as well yeah. and things like yeah. that. He was, he was pretty dreadful. And it, in the game, actually, a couple of stages, it looked like it might boil over because he was so weak. He, he he didn't control the game at all. And the game looked like, a pretty tame game, looked like it might boil over a couple of times because of his his weak play. But he then gifted him a free kick when clearly could say there was fouled in the build-up to it. It was a blatant foul. McAllister probably, probably did trip um, Madison, but he wasn't much in it. And then he booked him as well. Madison being a cheat as he always is and diving any any possible way he could, but he didn't know any on. And yeah, luckily Madison kicked the ball into the wall, so it was okay. But yeah, that could have been a, Real kick in the teeth if he'd scored that. Yeah. Um, and there's a number of these referees have come in recently, a lot of new names, and including from abroad with uh, what's his name, Gillis, is it? Oh, God. Um, yeah, he's awful as well. None of them are great, to be honest. And I know these get these guys, some of these guys get fast tracked because they've apparently shown really good prowess at very early stages, and I'm sure they have, but. Uh, Whatever they're doing or not doing, when they're getting into the Premier League, they are not looking great. Right. I've got to say. No, I've, I've still yet to see what they saw in Jared Gillett. I'm, I mean, mm. he's every time I've seen him, he's been poor at best. Yeah, in TV and and like kind of yeah, live. I've got one or two more things to talk about in regards to Roberto Di Zerbi. Uh, but in the meantime, anything further to add from the Leicester game? Who was your man of the match? Um, so, I, I think it's worth noting for all the fact that it felt like a bit like two points dropped at times that we probably wouldn't have got that point last season, I think. We just kept going. We Ferguson. Oh, well, no, we were draw stretch. specialist Peter last season. I know, yeah, I suppose maybe actually, but I feel <laughs> like we probably would have that situation of lost it in the end last season. So um man the match, Mitoma was probably like kind of was up there. Uh, I thought Dunk played pretty well. Uh Stupinol had a really good game. Um yeah, midfield, Casado and McAllister were good. There was there was some mixed, yeah, mixed bag, but um, obviously, like, Ferguson came on and made a difference. Hmm. Yeah. We he sounds around. French, Peter. Hmm. Estupino. Uh, yeah, we, 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 without, a, you know, obviously we lost, like, Lallana, and that was a big blow, I think, and he was, yeah, he was, he runs that game, and he also, you look at him on the pitch, he kind of, like, 
controls the team as well. He's like very much like the, the in a way, he's the captain on the pitch, even though Dunkey is a, a lot more like kind of lead by example, whereas Orlando's the one going like, we all go here, we all do this, you do this. So, you know, the one talking throughout the game. And yeah, I think when he's on the pitch, we don't, we do miss him when he's on the pitch. Yeah. Same happened against Villa as well. Obviously, he took the lead in two minutes and he went off injured and then it went downhill a bit from there. Yeah. I think Leicester, I think it's it's a point gained and it's two points lost at the same time, isn't it, really? Yeah. For various points in the game. Uh, we've We've had a lot of coverage in the media uh, over the last couple of weeks, which has been very interesting. I think um, one thing that was very positive, again, on the De Zerbi theme, and this brings me back to my other points I wanted to mention, there's a guy called Antonello Guerrera on Twitter who's apparently had an exclusive interview with De Zerbi for, Rep- for At Republica, and he said he talked about everything. The night after Liverpool, his style of play, the targets for this season, why he rarely enjoys his successes, Trossard, this is pre-Trossard sale, Mudrick, McAllister, etc. And there's, there's quite a bit on here, but it basically um, his interview uncovered some interesting comments. Deserby apparently said to him, I struggled to sleep the night of the match against Liverpool. No celebrations. I watched and analysed the game again and again for the future until dawn. You guys think that the hardest night for a coach is the one before the match? No, it's after, he says. This is why I maybe never fully enjoy my successes. I always think about improving. With Brighton, we must aim for perfection in football. This relates to uh, his answer to a question I had to him in a private forum uh, a few weeks ago. Um, He strives for perfection. He says, perfection is impossible, but we'll work hard to get as closest as we can to it. He says, we have reached just 60 to 70% of our potential as a team and individually. Before moving to Brighton, I didn't expect my players to be so good, but I immediately realised that they were at my debut against Liverpool, the three-all draw. From my side, nothing serious happened with Trossard. This is before the sale, by the way. Uh, He said, um, but recently he didn't give 100% in training and on match days. Football deserves respect. It gives everything to us, but we also have to give everything. I I don't have to apologise for anything. He said also on the matter of Trossard, maybe his agent fancies selling him for a lower transfer fee. Surely Trossard didn't tell me the truth. Everyone knows the dressing room knows how things went. But if Trossard wants to rejoin us with the right attitude, um, then he can do. Um, A great player and a pleasant man, his biggest quality is that he always does the right thing at the right moment. At 24, his maturity is stunning. He went on to talk about Midrick as well, saying that um, Mikhailo is a top... uh, I can't see what that says. Uh, Oh, yeah, a top player. He has the potential to win the Ballon d'Or in the future. Also, he is a sensitive young man. He needs affection to give him his best. And he went on to say, I'll never forget my players. Before the bombs fell, we were a fantastic team. Shakhtar could have stunned Europe last year. And I'll never forget the people of Ukraine. They'll never surrender to Russia. Yes, an Italian always misses Serie A. Also, one day I wish to coach in Spain or Germany because only experiences abroad make you grow up. That said, I feel great at Brighton. I've just pressed something, so I've now lost my quote. Here we go. Where is it? Um, I feel great at Brighton, and I love being here. Fantastic players, very solid and well-organised club. Lovely fans. Pasquale Marino, when I was a player, and Pep Guardiola, the best of all. He made football evolve. 
He also played for Brescia, which uh, Deserbi did. He says, finally, the final quote, I inherited a fantastic team thanks to Graham Potter and his great job here at Brighton. My players are young, brave and well-trained thanks to him. But I had a different mentality from Potter, more offensive, which is interesting. Quite a few interesting quotes in there. I think he's he's very heart on sleeve, isn't he? Is the first yeah, thing. I, I mean, I love the bloke. He's just genuinely like it's passionate. You're not going to get him lecturing us on like history and that sort of shit and that sort of side of things. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's like basically exactly as you say. He's like he he is what everything he thinks he kind of says almost in a way. Now some people yeah. might not like that. I I love it. I think he's. I'm already. I think I think the majority of the fan, a lot of the fan base, are already more connected with. Deserbi in the space of like three months and they are ever with Potter. I think that's fair. He, he is the, the, the perfect uh, mixture, isn't he, of Poet and Potter. Yeah. P- Potter's uh, nous and um, tactical awareness with Poet's personality, persona, charisma. But he's not as far as Poet as well. He's not like, he, he doesn't seem to take it too far, I don't think. Yeah. He's less far. anything last weekend by the FA or whatever. Yeah, he's he's less far in the Poet stakes, but he's further in the Potter stakes, which is the perfect combination. Um, loads of things in there. I can't remember if we talked about Trossard. He's gone to Arsenal, 20 rising to 27 million. I think it's a deal that's good all rounds because I think the player wanted to go. So it's, he's, he's happy to go to a club that might win the title. And he's probably joined in time to win a title winner's medal if they do so. Yeah, Arsenal were, I've got I thought there was the agent actually as well. It's comments on him because looking at his client list, he did from someone I thought on North Stone chat or Twitter, I think he didn't have a great client list. Mm. And you wonder how much there was the, the element of him wanting to make a lot of money out of Trossard because he didn't have many other players he was going to make money out of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, as I said, it's a good deal all round because he wanted to go. We didn't want someone that didn't want to be here. And Arsenal paid a reasonably okay fee. So I think yeah. amongst deals that have been done with the Albion in terms of sales, our end, I think that's probably the best deal anyone's had from us recently. But I think it's still the right deal. Yeah, I, I, don't, worked... I, don't, I don't think he'll be next season. He won't get much time, I don't think, on a pitch. You think Arsenal win the... At the moment, I, I would say he's possibly ahead of Enketia. I would I'd play him up that, and that's a position ahead of him. But it looks yeah. like they're playing with Enketia. If he yeah. can't get in now, Jesus comes back, that that blocks off one avenue. Then they, you know, Smith Rowe is obviously quite a decent option off the, but he gets a bit off the bench. And then they'll they probably go and invest in more players as well. So I, I'm not sure next season. I think he'll get game time this year with all the games coming up and, and with, 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 you know, limited options unless Arsenal spend before the end of the month. But I don't think next season he will. I think mm. he's basically going to get himself a lot of money out of it, but I'm not convinced he'll get. But I mean, if, in all honesty, I'm pretty sure we'd have offered him 70 grand a week to sign a new deal anyway. So he probably could have made a lot of money staying here and potentially been helped, helped us get to Europe. And this is why I don't understand these. I understand that he wanted to move, but if he carried on till the summer and really pushed himself, he could have got 15 Premier League goals and he'd had all sorts of options and may have got a first team place in a big six side. As it is, he's going to be a permanent bench warmer with a cup game that he's going to play in. Yeah. I'm not sure that, you know, all this talk about he wants to play and be at the right place. Well, I don't think he's going to play at Arsenal even now because he's not going to get ahead of a bit of Martinelli or Saka, is he, to be honest? Or Hayes fit. Two points on that. First of all, he scored seven goals in 16 games. And I think he had three assists, I think it was as well. So that's a pretty good ratio. Fair play to him for that. In terms of what you said, no, you're probably right. However, if he gets enough game time to win a title winner's medal, 
and he's on massively more money than we 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 were paying him. Is he going to care? I think he'll be yeah, happy. Probably not. Him. But he did claim to want to be you know a first team, and obviously that will affect his Belgian chances if he's not on the playing and for yeah. Arsenal. Also, that seven in sixteen wasn't seven in sixteen in a way. It was seven in fourteen because he didn't basically turn up for the last two games he played. Yeah, true, true. Because he didn't even you know put any effort in. Yeah, and, uh, in any in, of the, the Charlton game or the two league games he played after he came back against Lampard and Arsenal, we were better off without. In his favour as well, I will say that I, assuming he didn't have an attitude problem in the World Cup in the training camp, why he wasn't chosen over Hazard? Yeah, who's just uh, I camp. agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you have to ask Roberto Martinez that, who's now the new Portugal manager, which I find <laughs> extremely bizarre because he's he screwed up the. I mean, the Belgian, you know, gener- young generation, generation, or whatever, brilliant generation, were much better than our brilliant generation. They actually had a players who could play together rather than like basically four really good midfielders who no way could play together. And uh, the odd good defender and attacker. They actually had a whole team who were like among the best players in that. People like Courtois, De Bruyne, Lukaku, Azard, Oliver Elt, Vertonghen. You know, there's so many good players. The Dembele when he was available in uh, before he retired. They, they, and Martinez's best achievement is a semi-final of the World Cup when uh, when England got there as well. Arguably with England's weakest team, you know, for a while. Uh, it's it's just yeah, I find it really weird that he's been given the Portugal job. I found it weird he got the Belgium in the first place and I find it even weirder that having yeah. failed miserably at Belgium, he basically kind of, and he did. I mean, as much as they got to the World Cup and a final of the Nations Cup, whatever it was, they, they really haven't done, they've done, they've done less with that Belgian team than Southgate did with the England team. He He's sort of done, because if I'm correct in remembering this, he, he, he continued the philosophy of Swansea playing a a ball playing, ball retention type of style. Was he in charge of Wigan when they won the FA Cup? I think he, yes, was. he was. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got one trophy to his name, which is fair enough because that's against the odds, hundred percent. But he hasn't really done much overall. No. Is he? He's a good coach, but he's not. He's not brilliant. So he's His in charge. In the last three tournaments, is significantly worse than Southgate in England, and people yeah. wanted Southgate out, and Southgate a much weaker team on and paper. Spend. Player by player by distance. You look at Sven with the uh, with, with his golden generation that he had, which was more or less equivalent, maybe weaker than no, Belgium. I think their generation was a lot better than ours. I mean, you couldn't. I mean, half of ours you couldn't play together, like Gerard and Lampard and Stoles and stuff. They had these cliques or cliques, as these idiots co- seem to call it. I'll have another rant about p- pronunciation later on. But anyway, me and my um, cliques call it cliques, so you know. <laughs> um, but. I think Sven, you know, he had he had a bit of a profile. He'd be that was it Lazio, was it? I think he Yeah, that was very important. I think he probably had achieved more than Martinez. Who knows, who knows? Oh, he anyway, definitely had he won stuff, but I think he won a league at Lazio, didn't he? So Yeah. But to wrap up this first um, part then, so can we just say Antonello Guerrera, interesting article. Thank you very much for that. Also, thank you to Rob Gilbert, who is a listener to this podcast as I understand it, who recognised me at an away game. Not Rod Gilbert. Through my voice. Not Rod Gilbert with the togs. All about the togs in the duvets. No, it's not him. No, it's Robert Gilbert. He's an Albion fan. He's he's very prominent on, on Twitter. And he responded to that article about De Zerbe saying, what a guy, what a coach. We, Brighton, are lucky to have him at our yeah. club. I, I can't agree more. I can't I agree, agree with more. both Rob and Rod about that. <laughs> yes, it's all about the togs, isn't it? <laughs> On that note, we're going to have a break. In part two, you're going to hear my conversation with Neil Atkinson from this midweek, talking about the upcoming 
game with you-know-who, Liverpool FC, and indeed the match just a couple of weeks ago where we played the very same team and beat them 3-0. He's going to give his opinions on that match and the upcoming game. Uh, Peter, you've heard this as well, so I'll get your opinions on this afterwards. Here it is. This is Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap. So, Neil, from the Anfield Wrap, welcome to the podcast, or welcome back, I should say. Uh, how are you, sir? Very well, indeed. Always a pleasure. Excellent. Good to hear. And I'm not, I, I said when we were communicating just to organise this, that I wouldn't needle you too much about the last result. I'm going to go gentle on you. Uh, amazing. You can say, well, let's be clear. <laughs> Liverpool were absolutely awful, but Brighton were brilliant. And, and I always feel a bit, in that instance, what happens is everyone wants to talk about the Liverpool being rubbish thing a bit too much. Although, you know, because I thought that, what Brighton worked out really, really quickly in the game was just how bad Liverpool were and how they could hurt them. And that's testament to how clever those footballers were. You know, they, they obviously dominated the show. But there's games, there's been games this season. I mean, my God, we were pretty dire against Leicester at Anfield. Gave them an early goal. And then Leicester didn't quite know what to do with themselves. And then they gave us two own goals back, which was very kind of them. So now I thought that, you know, Brighton were, were you know, very much realised that Liverpool were there for the taking and took them. And I think that's enormously to Brighton's credit. Absolutely. It's, it's not often you score three goals and lose 2-1, is it, uh, Leicester? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite something. But no, thanks very much for saying that. And also, I, I do I do agree with you. It is often, well, not often, it's always twisted to how badly this big team, that big team has done. And even though we're up a mid-table, you could argue pushing for the for European places at the moment, still that narrative persists, and it is pretty irritating. Even in the Leicester game, actually, funnily enough, when we, we speaking of Leicester, we got the draw at the weekend. Um, you know, that was, it was still a lot about the dialogue around how badly Leicester are doing or, or you know, didn't manage to do this, that or the other. Um, but it is good to know that you, you guys are giving us the credit we deserve for how well we've been playing. Um, but it, it must also be noted, yeah, in that particular match, at the Amex, it was a a madly bad performance from Liverpool. I mean, you guys have obviously had injury issues uh, that have persisted and carried on through into that match and probably beyond as well. Um, but is there more to it than that? Has Klopp lost his mojo temporarily or have the players a little bit? Do you think what what is causing it to be quite so bad? I think the ultimate sort of issue is... There's been we've had a lot of injuries this term, but I think there's just an overall absolute burnout from certainly last season. I think Liverpool, I think last season catches Liverpool a little bit on the hop. You know, they get to about late January and they suddenly are in with a shelter winning a quadruple for a season that I think if you'd have asked them to all put the cards on the table before a ball was kicked at the very start of last season, they'd have said, "Well, we back ourselves to have a good run in the European Cup." And we reckon if City make a bit of a mess of it, we could capitalise in the league. But that's not we're not going to break ninety points. Um and, you know, on top of that then there's the you know, the, the there was Van Dyke coming back from a long term injury, Gomez coming back from a long term injury. And we've never really done that well in domestic cups under Jurgen. And all of a sudden we find ourselves winning two domestic cups, so going all the way, going all the way in the Champions League and all the way in the league. And it meant that every game was a massive game. So it's just, sort of put it in context. Henderson plays 57 games last season, makes 57 appearances, and he's never broken under Jürgen 42 appearances before last season. So at the age of 31, turning 32, is when he has his most intense season for Liverpool, when it's all on the line, when everything is on the table. Um, And I think he has a good season last season. Fabinho, I think his record number of appearances under Klopp until last season's 42, he ends up with 48. That's quite a marked difference, and 
they look like that at the minute. They look like they've you know they've been through a great deal. These footballers, they're finding it really really hard. And I think that that on top of the fact that other players who might have been expected to take some of the burden at, earlier this season have had injuries. You know, Keita, Chamberlain, Jones uh, have all been out with extended injuries. I just think there's and you know in general Liverpool maybe could have done with recruiting a little bit more in the area. I think that in general this just ended up being a, being a real malaise and now they're all trying to have to rouse themselves for a, a push for maybe top four an outside chance of that um, and they're just lacking a couple of gears and I think that it's you know I'm hopeful the hope is Brighton not because of Brighton I hasten to add but Brighton's the Nadia of the season and that from there you know since we went to Brighton there's been two clean sheets uh, there's been a shift in the midfield setup um that it'll end up being seen as a little bit of a watershed moment for the side. Um, that's the hope. I mean, you know, there's a long way to go on that, but I think that Liverpool leave the Amex knowing that they need to rebuild their season, if not necessarily their squad completely. They need to rebuild the season from first principles. And so I think all of that sort of has, has mounted. That There's been other issues as he's tried to shift the midfield focus. It's made it harder for Trent Alexander-Arnold to play his natural game. He's had. Uh, I don't think Van Dijk's been as good this season as he was his first season back from after the, the elongated injury. I think he's found it a little bit harder, and now he's out injured as well. Uh, of our forward options at the moment, we're lacking. Um, you know, I thought that we really missed Nunez at the Amex, not because I think he would have made us play football better, but he would have really been able to run in behind and push Brighton back, and he might have made Brighton play football worse. If you sort of see what I mean, he might have made Brighton less compact. But you know. We haven't had Nunez um, so far this camp, as much as we'd like this campaign, but we certainly haven't had enough of Diaz and Jota, and now we're missing Firmino as well. So of his sort of six starting forward options, he's currently down to only two uh, in there. So I think I think all of this has added up, but I think ultimately it's a side that just does look burnt out, and precisely what you do about that, because the really weird thing is that we've still got 19 league games left to play. That's half the season. It doesn't feel like it to any of us, but right now we've still got half a season left. So they can be burnt out as much as they want. They've got to complete 19 league games. <laughs> so we, it all needs to get sorted out one way or the other. And the Amex coming up, I think, is another step forward on that journey. Yeah, for clubs, unlike ourselves, who have had this extra involvement in the European camp- uh, campaigns, the longevity in those domestic cup competitions... Obviously, that burnout is through the roof, and I did suspect you'd say that was a major reason for the recent decline in their fortunes. And if you look at Lionel Messi's just won the World Cup, finally, and there's a whole debate about the GOAT and everything else, and he hasn't really done it for Argentina to the degree that everyone might think he would. But he hasn't had a break for summer after summer after summer, and in international breaks and everything else. He's not stopped for years and years and years, and it's no coincidence. Um, you know, perhaps they, this was the time where what he's playing in Paris, where it's a little bit more processional for winning the title, and they've dropped out of the Champions League slightly earlier and so on and so forth, that maybe it was his year to, to do it. But in terms of Liverpool, yeah, I mean, it looked like you'd done the right stuff. You'd, you'd strengthened in numbers in the attacking area which you thought was a good way of negating the issue of losing Mane. And, of course, you know, <laughs> lo and behold, you end up just with even more injuries in that department, which uh, which is a bit of a difficulty. Uh, how much do you think you've missed Mane? Do you think it's... Do, do you think he's, he's left a void still? I know there's obviously the injuries distorts this, the answer to this, really. But um, do you think you've missed what he brought particularly? Because he, he led the press, didn't he, pretty much? Yeah, I think we missed Mane, but I think we've missed Jota more. And... I think that it's an unspoken... I mean, Mane wasn't very good for the first half of last season. So Jota is excellent for the first half of last season. Mm. Has an injury when we get to about February. 
comes back, but he's off the boil a little bit. It doesn't quite hit the heights again. Uh, Mane, first half of the season last season, there was Liverpool supporters saying it's time for him to go, which in the end is what happens. Liverpool moved his position, they signed Diaz, so they've got the extra body in terms of a ball carrier in there. And, and Mane, I think, has his, his last hurrah playing centre forward for Liverpool and does well uh, in the role. But I don't think it's as simple as, I think there's obviously a cultural thing around Mane, but even he was sort of sort of visibly, physically declining. And what's interesting is, you know, he doesn't go to the World Cup in the end because he gets an injury. And, you know, similarly, Gini Wijnaldum left Liverpool two seasons ago and has barely played 15 games of football since. But, you know, you've you've put... And that's why this isn't just for me. It's not just one season. I think one season's been about, you know, they've had to go deeper than they've ever gone before, dig deeper. But I think that they absolutely, for, you know, since 2016, there's a number of these footballers, uh, 2016, 2017, 2018, you know, get to the first Champions League final under Klopp in 2018. These footballers have not just played a hell of a lot of games, but every single game has had something riding on it. So to go to use the 17-18 example, we go all the way in the Champions League and we qualify for the Champions League the following season with one game to go. So you're playing until the very, very end. The following season, we get 97 points going toe-to-toe with Manchester City and win the Champions League. So you never get... You know, we have this cliche that we use around footballers in April and May where we wonder, are one or two of them on the beach? And what we don't mean is that they are literally sort of playing in sandals or that they're not trying. But I think there is a thing where games have less rider on them. Liverpool have had no games on the beach, apart from possibly post-March uh, 2020, when the COVID football comes back in. And that was a funny period anyway, because the league was effectively all already won. But Liverpool have had no games on the beach. Uh, that's the only time, you know, the season when they don't do very well, when it's the full COVID season, they need to win. In the end, they win eight of the last 10 to secure Champions League football. And then last season goes the way in which it goes. So there's not even been the idea that Liverpool, whilst completing league fixtures, have been able to play wind-down football for five seasons. Every game has felt absolutely massive. And when you're going toe-to-toe with Manchester City, you feel like you kick off 1-0 down because they're going to win. So you've got to win. And I think it's interesting that this season, you know, City aren't quite themselves. Um, I think it's fair to say that. I think they've sort of lost a certain je ne sais quoi in there. I think there's, you know, Chelsea even for all the purchases, you know, they've played the most football of anyone out of the last last two years of football because they, they won the European Cup the season before and they've gone deep in cup competitions uh, mm. on three occasions of the last four times they've been run. And, you know, they've found it hard and a lot of their sort of mainstay footballers have really gone off the boil or left. Um, you know, Leicester have played a lot of football. They've gone deep into cup and European competitions. They're a mess. West Ham have had you know, two seasons of European football. They're a mess uh, this season, really underperforming compared to what you'd expect. I don't think this stuff's that coincidental, to be honest. And I think that, that this is in the post for everyone to some degree. But I think Liverpool have ended up having it, having it toughest because there's been injuries on top, but maybe because they've not refreshed as quite as smartly as they could have done. And then they end up sort of scrabbling around a little bit, it feels like, in this transfer window for, for a midfielder. But, you know... All of this, though, you've got to be careful because what you don't want to start saying is that you don't want you to, like I, for instance, think that Brighton should be absolutely determined to go as deep as they can in the FA Cup this season and should also be genuinely sort of eyeing up a European place. I think it's what the club deserves. I think the club's been brilliantly run for a long period of time on and off the pitch. And I think that, you know, that should be capped with European football. Uh, that's what, you know, Brighton should be in it for. So you've got to be careful that you don't end up saying, oh, you don't want any of that European football because it'll knock all your players out because that's the reward and that's meant to be the good bit. But I think it does come eventually, you know, it will come with, with, with an additional tariff 
physically on your players. But then, you know, Liverpool have got unbelievable resources, huge budgets, huge wage budgets. So you've got to you've got to be able to plan for that and you've got to make your decisions. Yeah, there's a bit of a paradox, isn't there, in this qualification for Europe? Because we, we see it as a genuine possibility. I think realistically for the first time where we really look like we could could compete well enough to qualify come the end of the season, either through the league format or indeed through maybe even winning a cup, who knows? Um, well, the FA Cup, it would have to be this season now. Um, and we'll come on to our game in a moment uh, in, in that regard. But yes, it's it's a big jump, isn't it? If you did qualify for Europe as a club like the Albion with less resources, less wage budget than Liverpool, and well, maybe probably less than West Ham and the likes of them, it's going to be a, a big jump if we do go up. We've we had a good, we've shown some good strength and depth. Our weakened team beat Arsenal's weakened team at the Emirates in the League Cup, and comfortably so. That was a great result, and we we showed that we have got some strength and depth. And I think it's a mixture of who we brought in, the players we've signed who were just in that periphery and just about ready for first team football. A couple of academy players that are coming through that are doing really well. But I do think that be a it would be a huge chasm of what we've got versus what we'd need. Um, do you see us, as from the outside looking in, Neil, I don't know if you were at the game um, the other week or indeed whether you're going on uh, Saturday, on Sunday this week. But, I was there um, the week, but I'm, not, I'm not on Saturday. No, I'm not, OK. Sorry, I'm not on Sunday, but I was, like, I was for, the, for, the, for the 3 nil. Yeah. yeah, well, having seen us up, up close and personal in that game and with your overall perspective, how do you see it going for the Albion? Do you think we will qualify based on what you've seen so far at this halfway stage? I think... Ultimately, I think that realistically, to some degree, Liverpool and Chelsea both get their acts together to some degree, which maybe pushes Brighton down into you know likely being being seventh or eighth. But it's possible that one of Liverpool and Chelsea don't quite get their act together soon enough. I think it's also possible that Brighton are able to still pick up points at at a very healthy rate. I think I think this is a really interesting Brighton side. I think I, th- I, th- I think Brighton are a good side, a really good side. And I think that if you did if you did get into Europe, I actually think you know, for instance, let's imagine if, if Brighton got into say the Conference League, I think that I'd make Brighton probably favourites for it before the ball's kicked. Um, I think that that would be you know something that'd be eminently possible. The, the question would be being able to split resources between the league and the European campaign. But I'd be yeah. pretty certain that Brighton could go really deep into that competition and do well. You know, West Ham made a Europa League semi final. I think I'm right in saying, mm. uh, you know, there's nothing to stop for me Brighton being able to. To go quite deep in in either competition, um, if they were to if they were to get into the competition, and then again, that's where the budget thing, you know, Premier League teams are richer than so many of the European counterparts. So, you know, Brighton, who would have to be full of pep and vim and outperforming the budget to get there, once they're there in Europe, they'll be one of the sort of top six budget sides in in either of those two competitions. So, I think I, I think if they got there, they'd do well. I think there's lots of reason to think that they can. I think it's so important not to sell. Um, anyone in this in this window, and it looks like that's what Brighton are going to do, and I respect that massively. There's been a lot of links, the idea that Liverpool won Caicedo, but firstly, I think the footballers should see it out of Brighton for the rest of the season. I think almost spiritually, having come on the journey, I think it's important to to see that through. He's of a good age where if he wants to get a good move in the summer, I'm sure the club will support him in that and help him in that, and, and, and make sure the club are compensated, don't get me wrong. But Brighton don't exist to solely to, to be a feeder club to bigger clubs that will be part of I think Brighton's sort of business plan but they don't have to do it every time any big club clicks the fingers as far as I'm concerned and if Brighton are in a position where they can challenge for a top six finish then I do feel a little bit I feel differently around it I think if, if Brighton were 13th 
but Caicedo was the outstanding footballer in that team, then I'd go, well, maybe there's a bit of an argument to to say, well, you know, he does, he should move on and he should have opportunities. He can still win a trophy with Brighton this season. And if you got Brighton into Europe, it would be the high watermark for what is this Brighton renaissance um, across the last sort of 10, 15 years. And I think you're part of that. You know, you don't get to choose to be a teeny bit part of that. And then as soon as it's to your convenience, you disappear off. I think, you know, if he moves on in the summer, then he moves on in the summer. And the same with a couple of others. Um, but I think that, you know, Brighton are in, it should feel like, and I'd, I'd want Brighton to feel like they're all in this together now until the end of the campaign. So I, th- I think that there's every chance Brighton can finish sixth or seventh. I think it's possible. It just becomes eighth. Um, and they get a little bit squeezed out, a little bit undermined by the Newcastle project, possibly. But I think ultimately, I think that this is a side that is quite clearly one of the eight, will prove to be one of the best eight in the country by the end of the season. And then where that comes in the shake-up, I think fourth will probably be a bridge too far. But the fifth, sixth, seventh or eighth feels as though, you know, feels very possible for this Brighton side. Oh, excellent. Good to hear. Um, speaking of budgets, as you did there, that's one problem that I might have to encounter, which you guys have had to deal with on a number of occasions. This might be a one-off for us, is my travel budget. Because <laughs> yeah. it would be our first time in Europe. I'd have to be going around there. It's massive. It's massive. It'd be massive for the supporters. It'd be massive for the Amex. The Amex is a great ground. You know, it's, it's, it's really well set up for the idea, I think, of teams coming from overseas, having a great time. Brighton itself as a place is a brilliant place. You know, I think if it would be madness. I would if, if Brighton got into Europe, every single European club would want to come and play play Brighton. Uh did want you know every set of supporters would want to come and be part of it at Brighton. What when I say Brighton have got everything right on and off the pitch, I you know, I include sort of the social sides as well. I include the fact that the town, the city feels part of the, the football club, even though it is connected by a train. You know, I think that all of that is is part of why, you know, Brighton in Europe I think is you know, potentially really, really exciting. I think it's, it's it would be really exciting. It'd be really exciting for Brighton as a place. Really exciting for the sides that Brighton were to meet, meet in Europe. The way the Amex sets itself up post match. You know, the idea of, of of balmy spring evenings as Brighton move through the Conference or Europa League from last sixteen into last eight, and you know, the idea that everyone gets to enjoy the facilities uh, and enjoy the space. I think it'd be brilliant, and I, and and that's why I think you know. I'm really pleased they've set a prohibitive fee for Caicedo. It says that they know this is an opportunity to sprint for the line. I think we all know Brighton's brilliantly run, but I think it's important to be brilliantly run, but also know when the sporting opportunities are there. And right now there's a massive sporting opportunity for Brighton and and the people who've run Brighton as well as they have. They deserve the moment of getting European football at Brighton. They deserve to be at UEFA's big table. Excellent. And we had, of course, we had the heart ripped out a little bit with what happened with Chelsea earlier in the season. They took Potter, his original backroom staff, additional backroom staff, loads of other staff. And of course, they'd already taken Kukurea. Now they are one of the teams coming coming in, sniffing around Casado. Um, it was a big blow that we had to endure there. And we feared that we were on the brink of potentially getting into Europe. It was very early in the season. And we want, we thought our dreams may have been dashed there. But of course, the club have come up with a really good replacement manager, coach, I should say, uh, who's been doing brilliantly. And in fact, if anything, we've stepped on possibly f- further from where we would have done under Graham. Um, we hope for the best, obviously, in the league. Of course, the other possibility is to qualify through um, the cup competition that we are still in, which is the FA Cup. Um, we've got a bit of an awkward obstacle in our way coming up very soon on Sunday, which is, of course, you guys. Um, I'm sure you were delighted with the draw as much as we were when you saw that. You're thinking, right, we've got to get past Wolves, and then we've got the Albion and the Amex again. Um, how do you see this one going? Because we, we're going to have a couple of players out. Lalana's not going to be fit. Colwell, who's a young lad from Chelsea on loan, 
who's not, unfortunately, who's to be doing very well, is not going to be available. He's injured. Um, and we have McAllister has picked up a fifth yellow. So he's not going to be involved. Um, that's going to weaken us a bit. You guys still have your injury worries. How do you think it might go yourself, Neil? I've got, I mean, it's interesting you say all of that. I've got no, no real sense of, of what to expect from a Liverpool point of view in this one. I've got no sense of how strong he may go. And also, I, I've got no sense of what strong actually is. Um, it looks like Fabinho and Henderson have both forgotten how to play football, which is a major problem. Um, and so if he was to start Fabinho and Henderson, it might look like a strong Liverpool team. But if he was to start Fabinho and Henderson, it might well be that he's looking at them thinking, well, this is a cup game and they're actually now not in the first Premier League eleven. The only thing is we've got, you know, we've had no game since last Saturday against Chelsea. We've got no game until the following Saturday against Wolves. I think your marker is what he does in attack. I think if he plays Salah and Nunez, then he's very, very committed to wanting to win the game and keep the FA Cup status. If he picks only one of them, then I think it says, mm, could go either way. If he picks neither of them, then I think it's a bit of a mark about as far as he's concerned. The FA Cup is is a little bit of a write-off now for Liverpool this season and we'll go from there. Yeah. Um, so within that, does he pick Kelleher or does he pick Allison in goal? Um, again, I think if it's Kelleher, it's a slight marker, but I think he also would want to get games into Kelleher uh, because he's, he's a really good goalkeeper who, who deserves to get opportunities to play. He hasn't been played. Trent Alexander-Arnold hasn't started either of the last two. So again, if Trent starts, what does that actually mean? Uh, but I'd like to think that Trent will start. I I hope he goes quite strong. I hope you see Salah and Nunez up front. Um, then I hope he picks the midfield he wants to pick, uh, whatever he feels feels his first choice is. Because these footballers, if it is going to be different, need to get used to playing together. And Brighton will be a great test. Win, 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 lose or draw. I mean, there is also a nightmare scenario here. To be honest with you, Russ, that none of us are talking about, which is a draw. Uh, which means that Liverpool and Brighton will play each other three times inside one month. Um, you know that is that is a live runner and rider. We're going to have Wolves three times almost back to back because we've had them in the two cup games, and we go there to Molyneux next week. So they, we could end up in a situation where we effectively play uh, Brighton, um, where we effectively play Wolves, Brighton, Wolves, Chelsea, Brighton, Wolves. Brighton, um, in, a, in, a, in a run of games from a Liverpool point of view. I think I might have actually missed a Wolves game out there, uh, <laughs> which is just horrendous uh, in terms of your variation. So I think they're your markers for Brighton supporters listening. I think if Salah and Nunez start, then he's going for it, and he's picked pretty close to his best what he sees as his best eleven. If Salah and Nunez don't start, then he's going to just go with and see where he ends up. Uh, and if... If there's a bit of a halfway house there, that that's a bit of a suggestion thing. I hope he really picks Canate and Gomez together. I think that's worked well, and centre halves need time to blend and to work with one another. Um, I hope he picks Robertson at left back. Same thing applies to get used to working with Canate and Gomez in Van Dijk's absence. But ultimately, you know, I hope he goes strong. Is what I'm saying. If he does, I don't think that at the minute that's any any sort of certainty of anything in terms of Liverpool's performance. I think we're playing for time uh, a little bit at the moment. I think we're just trying to sort of find something, but. You could find something, and there being no McAllister, no Colwell, who I thought was excellent uh, in the in the game at the Amex does. He really was really really impressive, especially the way he passes through midfield. Um, you know that's obviously good news from a Liverpool point of view. Um, I'm sure there'll be smart alternatives to Lallana. I'm sure Matoma will be on it again. He scored last week, I noticed, and and he's such an exciting footballer. I think Ferguson's really impressive. So I think that you know Brighton will carry a ton of threat. And I think the key thing is I'd be really disappointed if Brighton didn't go as strong as they possibly can because. This is a trophy that could be won. This season, I feel as though Brighton could beat anyone at the Amex, including Liverpool this weekend, but also 
you know, I, I don't think it's a huge stretch of the imagination to imagine Brighton. What of Chelsea and Arsenal are going? Sorry, what of City and Arsenal are going out? Chelsea have already gone out. Uh, you know, there's, there's other other sides that are normally favoured for this competition. So if you know Brighton dispose of Liverpool and then one of Chelsea and City go out, I don't think it's mad to think that you know Brighton could beat City in a in an FA Cup semi FA Cup quarter final or semi final. At which point, you know, there could well be a, a Crystal Palace. I don't know if they're still in it or not, but a Crystal Palace in the final or a you know or a side in the final, Aston Villa uh, that they may feel as though they could get a result against. And you know, I I think that Brighton are more than capable. That's so why I hope Brighton. I think Brighton should be very much first eleven. I don't know what you think, but going to try and win the game. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think we will do because I do think we've, as you said, the, the, it's opened up quite a few Premier League clubs have dropped already. I think it's about eight have gone with some more guaranteed in this round. And um, yeah, I think we will go strong for it. Um, by the way, Palace are out, we're delighted to say. So, uh, I knew you'd have the details on that one. Yeah, beaten by um, manager uh, Nathan Jones at Southampton, former player of ours as well. So that was particularly uh, pleasing. <laughs> yeah. But we'll see see how it goes. I mean, I've got no idea how this will go at the weekend. It's live on TV, of course, as well. Lunchtime kickoff on Sunday for anyone that can't go, which includes myself, actually. I can't make it down, unfortunately, for that one. But I'll be watching with a keen eye on how this is going to go. We could be seeing the future winners of the competition. Uh, who knows? Um, so I wish you the very worst of luck, obviously, for Sunday. Absolutely. <laughs> but the very best of luck for the rest of the season after that, Neil. As long as there's not a replay, Russ. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I want if there's if if it's if it's level with five to go, I think both managers should sub the keeper. <laughs> let's just keep it. Let's just keep it. It gets sorted today. No yeah. keepers. See, see who wins. <laughs> totally agree with you. Yeah, neither of us want the replay, really, do we? <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent. Cheers. As always, Neil. Thank you for joining us, and we'll speak to you next time. Cheers. So there we go, Neil Atkinson telling us that we are going to win the European Conference League, Peter. <laughs> what do you think about that? I mean, if, if they might as well just give us the trophy now, really, mightn't they? <laughs> He's made his mind up. You know, we're, we're there. We're going to win it. Fantastic. Thank you, Neil. We, we look forward to, well, we can have a, a trophy ceremony in Liverpool. So, it's nice to have uh, uh, opposing fans on here being complimentary, but sometimes they're, sometimes they're a bit delusional as well. <laughs> Yes, usually about our transfer fees, but in this case, about us winning a trophy that we're not so sure about. Yeah, we, we haven't won a trophy in our history, that our major trophy, other than Charles Shield in 1910. In our first season of European football, we're going to win a trophy. I'm uh, genuinely impressed. Yeah, thanks, Neil. We, uh, I'll look forward to it. My bank balance will be pretty limited by the end, but you know. <laughs> we still need to have a beer with Neil. We, they're great guys, the Anfield Rap guys. I really love them. They're, they're superb. Um, well, we'll definitely be playing each other next year and if Liverpool go down, so... Yeah, well, that's it. We're on 31 points, is it, I think, at the moment? Yeah. So we only need to beat one more team or even just get three or four more draws and we're safe. There we go. There we go. <laughs> so, on to part three. Any other business? Right, well, can I start with this? Andy Naylor on Twitter has been uh, arguing the case about us with the, in our transfer policy. What about us in the podcast, or no, not us literally, no, no, because that would have been a bit weird. Um, he said a few was days it, was ago, he pro or anti? <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's to say, Peter? Who's to say? Oh, no, he, he said 190 million plus combined in terms of transfer, um, 
receipts for Trossard, Kukurea, Basuma, Byrne, Morpay, White. The cost for those players, 60 million, under 60 million. So a 130-something million profit on six players. Um, Not too bad. He also says 27 million is double what Brighton paid for Genk for Trossard in June 2019. Had him for 3.5 seasons from the age of 24. Another recruitment triumph for Brighton. It's true. We're getting a load of stuff right, aren't we? And obviously that ignores probably the biggest profit of all, which, well, I mean, who knows who it'll be, but I mean, it could be Matoma the way he's playing. It could be, it could be, probably win the short term be Casado. McAllister's going to be a huge profit. Ferguson will probably, if he carries on like this, be a huge profit. Yes, or or is it Leo Ostergaard? £100,000 we pay for him. We sold him for £9 million. Uh, Wasn't there a lot of add-ons in that, though? He's not really played for Napoli this year. Yeah, true, true. However, that's, uh, that's not bad. That's not no. a bad deal, is it? For a player who had played, I think, one game in the League yeah. Cup or something like and that. And at some point soon, we'll probably get a reasonable amount of money for um, Jokeres as well because he's due to, there's rumours of him moving now or in summer or whatever. Yeah, he scored at the weekend, which he was one goal behind the uh, the top scorer level for the championship. I, I'm assuming he's now joint top scorer. Maybe he isn't. I don't know. But he's that, one is that the, the, very, the very famous Tuber app bomb? <laughs> yes. yes I mean, that's kind of my point whenever anyone complains about the fact we let Jokerez go. It's the fact that, yes, he'd only got the same number of goals this year as Tuber app bomb who was one of the worst loans I've been made in the Amex years, if not the worst. I mean, he the level's a Billy Painter sort of thing. <laughs> well, there is that, there is that. I tell you who's a good striker, Peter, and we've solved our problem from in-house. We signed him two years ago. He's now 18, just turned 18. He's Irish, technically could play for England, but I don't think he's going to. He's played a couple of games as a friendly for Republic, and I think... He's going to feature in their qualifiers upcoming. There is you know, absolutely um, no way he won't get in that team. Yeah. He's their best player by some distance. It's Evan Ferguson. Now, I've got so much to say about this guy. Now, he scored the goal that was the equaliser at Leicester. We've talked about that a little bit. Can I just quote a couple of things that have come my way in the last couple of days? This is from, I think it's from uh, Glenn Murray. He said, in my first session with him, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Is that right? Yeah, I think it is. Let me just check. Hopefully training session, not session down a pub. Well, here's here's the quote anyway. It says, in my first session with him, he asked, oh, this is Mark Beard, our former youth coach. Yeah, he said, in my first session with him, he asked to do extras on his own. So I did a shooting session with him. He's an all round centre forward who can shoot with both feet, head, volley, score with his back to goal. I kept testing him but he had no weakness. The two goalkeepers didn't save one shot in 10 minutes. The session lasted. I have never seen anything like it. That's from Mark Beard, who was a youth player at the time. I had another... From Glenn Murray, it says, he was signed as a 16-year-old from League of Ireland Club Bohemians in January 2021, amid interest from Liverpool, Everton, Manchester United and Celtic, all with Irish connections, you'll note. He said, I'm not surprised by his progress at all. Oh, this sorry, this is from Beard. He said, I'm not surprised by his progress. He's a special talent who will go right to the top, 
He's got that aura about him. Without any ego, he can do everything with the ball. In my first session with him, we asked him to do extras, etc. what I've just talked about. He said, then came the wow factor from, from, from Murray with Ferguson slipping the ball past the advanced goalkeeper, Aaron Ramsdale. This is in the um, Arsenal game where he scored his first goal. It says, to have the composure, even with Ramsdale rushing at you, he rolls his studs over the ball, which changed the whole perspective for, for Ramsdale as it affects his angles, said Murray. That one touch, changing the direction of the ball, is almost unteachable. You've either got it or you haven't. And he went on to say his understanding of the game, when to drop off, when to spin it out, when to hold it up. They're things that can't be taught, said Murray. They're things that experience brings, but he just seems to have such a good understanding so early. I'm so impressed at the whole package. Well, I was going to say that that goal at Everton, there was like a lot of talk about it on match today and on the highlights, saying that it looked really simple in terms of the tap in and Simon did really well and had it back. That's the, the beauty of it. He went backwards and moved to the point where he got the ball and we had a really sort of, you know, easy, easy shot at goal, that sort of thing. And the position with a header as well at the weekend to get the position freedom to get on the end of the cross. Yeah, again, it's it's the sort of sense that a goal scorers have. And to have that at 18 and not, you know, it's, yeah, it isn't easy to learn. It's just something that you naturally have. And he looks, I mean, we've had so many full storms with strikers over the years from likes of Joe Gatting and Jake Robinson at, at with Dean to obviously uh, Aaron Connolly recently. But I, yeah, without getting carried away, he looks the real, real deal to me. He, he's, yeah, as they said, he's, he scored a, he's, he looks dangerous on both feet. He's, he's actually, you know, quite good. He's got two assists in that time as well. You know, it's not, he's not just a kind of greedy goal hanging guy, you know, kind of taking his chance. He looks like the player that we've been trying to buy and looking to try and sign for a while and haven't been able to, we haven't got the budget to do it. He looks like he could actually be, and he's, like, he's got just had a new contract as well, which is brilliant. Isn't it just so delicious that he's come from within? More or less, we signed him a couple of years ago, age 16, but, you know, and, and he's got a new... striker in as well. Well, Mark, yeah, Mark, yeah, exactly. Mahoney or something like that from Cork. Yes. Yes, we've just signed Mark Mah- Mac O'Honey. No, sorry, Mark O'Mahony, O'Mahony. isn't it? O'Mahony. Mark O'Mahony. Not Mark O'Mahony. Mark <laughs> O'Mahony. Mark O'Mahony from from um, Ireland, from Cork City. And we've also signed My Jamie names. Collins recently from Bohemia. The suggestion I've heard, I've, I've not seen him play particularly, is that Moran arguably is a, as good a prospect as Ferguson. He's just a position where we've got a lot of options at the moment and... I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to know what's happened here. We've we've stepped up through the ranks. Certain players have fallen short because Gilkares, Ostergaard, those sort of players would have fitted in. Maybe when we're a struggling Premier League team, definitely when we're a championship team, they've fallen by the wayside because we've gone on to greater heights. And yet, the timing is perfect for the greatest of all of our prospects, new or... Yeah or early assigned to the academy, Ferguson, Moran. The only who I, I read about this week who was quite an interesting one, who, there was a, a quote from a Walker manager saying that you're staying for the rest of the season, because there was obviously been talk of other cha- championship teams, maybe whatever, but Jensen Weir is staying there for the rest of the season. He's got nine goals for them already this season. I've seen he his goal. Like, he, well. he did not do anything that night that we saw them, but he... Yeah, we- we went we went to try and tick off Morecambe on the 92 list, I think, with our 87th ground at the time. 
I think on our way to 89 yeah. at the moment. And, well, I'm 88, you've got your one ahead of me. Oh, yeah, you haven't done Wimbledon yet. But anyway, but um, he, yeah, he was, he was poor that day. They were poor that day. But he's been scoring a lot of goals. He but he's looked, another one, you know, potentially next year championship. And then, you know, either we make a quite, quite a big profit by selling him if he does well, does okay there, but doesn't look like he build up. Or we potentially bring him in the sixth season. You know, it's, it, we seem to have these, you know, this talent for spotting the youngsters. And I know Wigan were obviously going through a bit of a shit time at the point that he kind of came through. And so we're a bit I lucky think, in that I sense. But he he's another one who did do well. I think he looks classy. He looks a good player. Whether he's good enough to be yeah. involved in our incarnation as we are now is difficult to say. But I do think that my point is with, with focusing on Moran, we somehow the, the graduation with our academy is fitting the Premier yeah. League model a bit more, which is well, great. Uh, the goalkeeping situation as well. We've got Sanchez, obviously, and then you know we've got Sherpin in Holland, who I don't know how he's doing, but... We've got, um, basically, you've got Rushworth on his way up to the championship next year, and I imagine, and then hopefully challenging in our, our level. We've got Beadle, then, who's just signed a new deal, who's then, who's on loan at Crew and probably start the same trajectory, hopefully, if he does well there. You know, we've got like a kind of permanent, just, you know, kind of like, you know, in midfield, hopefully, at some point, if one of these, if McAllister or, or Casado go in the summer, we've got like players like Kozlowski who might come in, yeah. who's supposed to be a really you know, good prospect in. In Poland, Alzate on loan, who's still quite young. I mean, might be able to make it under under Deserby. I still um, like Kadra as well. I think he's yeah. he really good. For, if he signed a new deal, why wants to sell him, or because they want to try and have a look at him in the summer? I imagine most players will be back in the summer, and and Deserby will be looking at them. And then if they, you know, a couple of weeks of training, they're not looking like it, and a friendly or two, they're not be loaned out or sold. But he'll want to have a look at these players. You know, people like Alzate, people like Kadra, people like that, people like um, the Polish fullback Karbovnik. You know, people like, you know, and they'll we'll get a chance. He's doing quite well in the German second division this year. Well, on the, on the subject of Ferguson, that, that one where he hit the post, um, he, he, Murray said he uses the pace on the ball to feed it back across the goal with his left foot. That was seriously good. That's something you yeah. might do when you've played for a long time, but I haven't seen that from an 18-year-old ever. And he said, as you are coming through, you want to make your mark and you snatch at things sometimes. You're so desperate for it to happen. But his calmness at that moment is exceptional. So many others might lose their heads. Yet it was another that- passage of play earlier in the game at Goodison that impressed Murray more. He said that the clip showing Ferguson lurking at the far post, about to run inside uh, Mialenko as Mitoma feeds the ball across the outside of his foot. Ferguson swivels to strike the moving ball with his left foot hitting the bottom of Jordan Pickford's right-hand post with the uh, with the diving keeper comprehensively beaten. Murray is seriously impressed with this guy. That's 20 it? minutes into his first start as well. Not just first league start, I think it was his first start full stop, wasn't it? Or did he start at... No, it was before Middlesbrough, yeah. So, he, so his yeah. first league start, he came against Arsenal and scored, and he played he at Everton. Started he, against Forest Green he Rovers even started and the scored and assisted. No, but he came off the bench, didn't he, there? I thought Undad started, didn't he? Oh, yeah, 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 you're right, yeah. Well, I don't yeah. think he started there. So it, it was literally, I think, his first start for Albion, which, I mean, 20 minutes in, he does that. And it's, yeah, he looks, and he and he's a sort of player you can, you know, he's mobile, but he's also well-built. He's strong enough to hold a ball up. He's kind of what we are looking at. It's kind of what I, already what I was hoping someone like Andoni would be, you know, someone who's a bit mobile, but also quite well-built and strong enough to hold a ball up. 
hopefully what with a quite such crazy attitude of generous as Andoni had, but yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And but, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to get a bit carried away with him, to be honest. He he is genuinely just, he's we, just brilliant, and yeah, piss off any big clubs interested in him. <laughs> well, you say piss off any big clubs. We we, we talked about the transfer window, and we're going to have one on thirty uh, first. Tuesday evening. Pembury Tavern. Pembury Tavern in Hackney Downs. As recommended by my mate Lawrence and a random bloke who we met in the pub in uh, Hampton. (laughs) And we will be doing our next podcast from there, which will include a review of our scintillating victory over Liverpool in the FA Cup, I'm sure. Um, But (laughs) in general, though, I've got to say this guy, it's very hard not to get very, very excited by him. Because he's got it all. He's two-footed. He's physical. He can play facing goal. He can play away from goal. He, he's got savvy. He's got, uh, he's got a cool head under pressure. He'll take his time if he needs to, to finish. And he, the, best bit, the best bit of all is all of the, the drawing runs he's done, where he's run over to make space for other players. Solly March, for example, in a recent game where he, he's got the savvy to understand very, very quickly where, where the space, where the potential is coming from. And you can probably all hear in the background my cat making her feelings known. Hello, Marmalade. She's getting carried away, isn't she, by him? She loves Evan Ferguson. Who wouldn't? She's singing do, 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 Evan Ferguson. It cat, <laughs> isn't she? Oh, yes. On that subject, two things. One... My cat is ginger, so she's probably Irish. And secondly, you said there was a new song, or a fairly new song, at Leicester. Yeah. Which we missed, which was like, I did quite amusingly, which was Jay- Jamie Vardy, Your Wife is a Grass, which I found quite entertaining. Yeah. Being us, simply, I mean, I also think before we get too carried away with Ferguson, and is everything you get carried away with, can we also get carried away with Matoma as well? He is oh, just, he's so good. It's ridiculous. He is so good. It's Every crazy. Arsenal fan I know is coveting him. Yeah. He is so, we need to get a new deal on his table pretty soon for him if we can, or we're going to lose him. Because he is... I mean, he, Liverpool, for example, the first half, I felt at the time he was a bit wasteful at times in the final third. And it sounds crazy to say, because we lost 1-3-0, but he was the one who was in positions where we didn't quite make the most ball. But then, yeah, he is... Alexander Arnold must be having nightmares about the idea of playing on Sunday if if Matoma starts. He's just they yeah they, they tore him apart down that flank and he is hit him and hit, yeah hit, his relationship with uh, uh, however you pronounce his name <laughs> I'm terrible at pronouncing for some reason but uh, Estupin, Estupin, Estupinian or Estupinian Estupinian he's not French is it yeah I'm, so, I don't know why so it's something I was sort of like thing I can't pronounce his name for some reason but anyway. Their relationship is brilliant down the left. Is they're so good, and we've I felt under uh, Potter at times we lack pace, and those two down the left are br- such so quick and so good at like getting up and down. And yeah, we have a permanent threat down that that flank. And then yeah, we I'd argue that actually most of our goals recently have come down the other flank with March, and then either Grosh or Veltman or whatever as well. So I yeah, we've we've actually I mean we're genuinely living in a golden time. I mean we may look back on this in five ten years time for the Championship and go like. I miss those times, you know, and you know, we were so good. Well, Peter, this could be slightly disingenuous, but can I just give you a stat here? Evan Ferguson has the highest ratio by quite some margin in terms of his um, 
I think it's his goals per minute. He's he's got, goals and assists per minute. I think he's just behind Harland in goals per minute, isn't he? I yeah, goals, goals and assists. Goals and assists, assists yes. per minute on the pitch. He's, I think he's a minute behind Harland in terms of goals, isn't he, I thought. Yeah, goals and assists, you're right. Yeah, Harland's basically... A minute uh, ahead of goals. He's selfish. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, we and wouldn't want him, wouldn't we? We've got Ferguson... He scored five goals. He's got a 2.27 ratio. No, he's, yeah, he scored three and assisted two in about 219 minutes or something ridiculously low yes, like that. Or, yeah. And Haaland has a 19 goal involvement ratio with 1.62 ratio. And then you've got, a bit of shit, really, isn't he? Yeah. And you've got Grencher, Marshall, Firmino, Firmino, sorry, Isak. Tony, Gerhard, all that. Like yeah, I mean, players like that, for me, no, to be honest. I'd rather go for Ferguson. <laughs> um, he has got it all, though, hasn't he? Seriously, this is a yeah, real... Yeah, we are getting carried away now. <laughs> 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 you know, it's the Europa Conference League next year. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just dispatching the cat out of the room. Not the, not this for the amateur or anything, but I had to get rid of a cat during a recording period online. I'm yeah, sure. I bet Neil Latin does have to do that. He, he, they, they're actually very professional rather than... <laughs> People like Paul Merson and um, Tim Sherwood and Alan Smith, they don't have to deal with this sort of stuff. And yet they are even shitter than we are. And yet, despite the fact we also are drinking while doing this, they still actually talk more shit than we do. I mean, Desoudis has never still not uh, kind of backed down about why he kind of said Deserby was a, a big risk and that sort of thing, you know. He's not going to apologise because it was too ridiculous. It was too can we, can ridiculous. Also, a little bit turn away then from Albion now and talk about the fact that Everton of today or on the verge of appointing their eighth manager in seven years under the Mashiri. What could go wrong, Peter? Hmm? What could go wrong? I mean, I think probably is the best choice, but it's a, it's such a ridiculous number of managers they've had in that time. Yeah. What what, what do you think about it all? What, what's your thoughts on it? I think probably it's a, it's a good choice for them. I think it's, it's the best chance of keeping up and the best chance of them. They could no way have played that. With their defence, played Bielsa ball and like pressed high and they've been absolutely destroyed by teams. It was a bizarre decision. And someone was interested when someone was saying, there was an article in the Metro today where they were saying there's no way Brighton had a shortlist of Bielsa and Deich where they have such different ways of playing. And, you know, kind of how on earth... A, a t- any any coherently planned club would never have a shortlist with both Bielsa and Dijon, who are basically the exact opposite way of playing. Why why would you have two different such different options that you're choosing between? You surely would have people we want to play a certain way, or have players to play a certain way, and you bring a manager in who can work with that at this stage. You wouldn't, you know, have two such extremes. And it, but I mean, I think they, I think because Bielsa's turned them down, probably they've come across the right one. And I think. That gives them a better chance of staying up than they had. He's, he's a decent option, and you know he he will get them solid. He'll get them kind of like you know functioning. And frankly, this that bottom six seven are all pretty dreadful. So four of them will stay up. So it could just easily be Everton. Yeah, I mean that does give them hope, doesn't it? I think they're still an uphill struggle, but they they have a genuine chance now. Um, I can understand why Everton fans might not be that impressed with Dice considering <laughs> Carlo Ancelotti two years ago, but. I think, given their situation currently, he is a much better option than Lampard, the keeper, and a much better option than Bielsa. And I, I, I think they should be realistic about it. And 
he'll get them. I mean, they've not considered loads anyway this season, but he'll get them defending really well. And they'll nick goals from set pieces and from, you know, that sort of thing, like he used to do at Burnley. And eventually, and they might win, nick enough 1-0 wins and one all draws and nil nil draws that they stay up. And you could just imagine with Dice in charge them winning at the Amex, to be honest. It, it's the sort of thing we do, you know, is, you know, we're very much like against teams managed by Dice and who are, you know, we don't get good results against that sort of manager. Yeah, true. Admittedly, yeah. In, under previous managers of ours, it's not under the Serbia. We haven't played anyone. It hasn't played Daesh, but Peter, we're doing a, a transfer special on Tuesday down the pub in Hackney. Uh, so that will be our latest podcast. In the meantime, yeah, Chelsea keep up in their offer for you, don't they? From what I've heard. Yeah, well, they they can bid and they can bid. They're up to sixty million now already. <laughs> they can pay what they want for me. I'll happily go. Um, the transfer window has turned into a farcical scenario that's got nothing to do with us. We were going to do very little business during the transfer window. We've signed uh, Mr. O. Mahoney and we've signed Jamie Mullins and we've signed Buenonote, which was tied up from October. Just they formalised the deal. Uh, and that was basically all we were planning to well, do. Supposedly signing Yassin Ayari or something his name is. Yeah, so Yassin Ayari, who's uh, an interesting prospect. Tell us about that. What, what do you know, Peter? I don't know. I can't say Kate to know an awful lot about him. Because he's a prospect in Sweden and seems to be, yeah, gone, yeah, be quite popular and be doing quite well with, at his club. And it's a very much an Albion sort of uh, signing, in a sense. 19 seems to be regarded as quite a high prospect in Sweden. So, yeah, it's very much a punt that, you know, has been taking off quite a lot recently. The only thing that goes against it is the fact that it's been mentioned before being tied up, which suggests it's not Albion, Albion signing, isn't it? Because we, we tend to do our business behind closed doors. But that's one that has been mentioned. Nicola Zaniola. Uh, that didn't sound like anything like any of our business. Twitter, North Stand Chat, 30 million plus. That's all the, the vibes. Doesn't sound like us, does it? No, it just, he, he's just, he's injury prone. He's, yeah. I mean, he's fallen out Mourinho, but then I think most Mourinho falls out with people, with a, in a, you know, somebody can fall out with someone in an empty room sort of thing, isn't he? So that, I wouldn't necessarily hold that against him, but no. yeah, I think he's, yeah, not really, we yeah, could... not, not really going to, going to be an option. Matt Vienko is the one who seemed like he might be, but we're so far apart in valuation. Well, this, this, is the thing. this is the one that makes sense because Deserby has a connection. Yeah. With him. Uh, he's a centre-back. Um, he's not the only Shakhtar player that Deserby has apparently been interested in, but he is 22 years old. He's a but, midfielder. Uh, um, what's his name? Artem Bondarenko. Um and also Alessandro Biangiorno, a left-sided centre-back from Torino, have also caught his eye. Yeah, and, and it's, it's been a few names. of those, I think, I think Fienko is the only one. I, I'd right. say Chamberlain as well was mentioned this week. And again, that's not really... I'm not sure that's... I think he... And I suppose and, unless Solana really was for a thing about retiring, he might not go for him. But I think probably it sounds like, from what Deserby said today, that we're not going to have anyone in or, in or out this rest of the window for the first team. So Yari might come in for the... And it might be like a loan out of the younger players like that, but it won't be like a first team player. I mean, I, I'm just fed up with these bloody top six sides. Chelsea starting it. Arsenal fans now getting on a, on a, you know, the bandwagon as well about Casado and, you know, how dare we value him at this sort of money? And it's like, well, 
but one person compared it to modern day slavery and it's like it, and this obsession is on three and a half grand a week as well it's like <laughs> clearly not on three and a half grand a week anyone with half a brain can work out and then people go like oh well it's, it's transfer value on transfer market website is like two pound fifty we should sell him for that it's like well piss off what Arsenal and Chelsea fans need to know is that A, they're entitled arseholes. B, we are not going to sell for less than a very inflated normal figure. Yeah. So I think Casado is worth probably 75 to 80 grand. I think Palace is worth at least 65 as well. We're, million, we're, we're not going to sell them for less than 100 grand. Uh, sorry, 100 million. I think if we're offering for a hundred grand, we have a lot of off. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, sorry. Yes. I, I might put it up on myself and actually, and then just set them up to, to, the, to the highest bidder. I but might I, be I, just, that, like, yeah. just like basically, just like borrow off some sort of random bank and then just like take it and kind of. But but isn't it wonderful to see it all unfold? All all of these fans at the greedy six clubs going, oh, Mitama's good player, isn't he? Oh, and about Ferguson as well. I have to say that you can't reach up include Arsenal. Arsenal fans have been through a lot. They they came like seventh one year, and it's been a really tough time for them. <laughs> oh, 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 you bitch! However, however, I've got oh, you, to you, say... do, you see on Twitter about them like, oh yeah, we've had a you know we deserve to win the league this year because we've had a really tough time over the last few years. Like you have no idea what I mean. You've got no idea about what life is a really tough time anyway. But in football terms, you literally haven't got a clue. <clears throat> yes, but then then you've got to feel sorry for them, haven't you, Peter? Because some of them haven't had a trophy for two or three years. No, it must be tough. Yeah, yeah. We haven't had a trophy since 1910, except for the <laughs> 16-year cup. <laughs> no, we've we've had a few trophies. They're all localised. But uh, anyway... Um... Or, or like lower league titles, whatever, like League One or League Two. But yeah, I just I just find the whole big six. And Chelsea just seemed to have an obsession with like attacking us. I don't know if it's Potter's pissed off about the fact that he got he got a reception he did or what it is, but they just seem determined to like completely destroy our, you know, kind of all the work we've done. And it, well, can I just say a few things about Chelsea? First of all, to any anybody from the club who happens to be listening, to any of their fans, can you please one hundred percent and very comprehensively fuck off? I'm sure there's loads of listening in. <laughs> We we cannot stand you. You are entitled. You are embarrassingly, embarrassingly deluded in terms of your your perspectives on football, your perspectives on life, in terms of Caicedo, in terms of McAllister. Oh, don't don't say, you know, say what you really think, Russ. Don't hold back. I know, so, I know. I, I, I get accused of being on the fence. I'm on the fence. Listening, we shouldn't the... talk about this really good prospect that we've got called Aaron Connolly. <laughs> oh, he is brilliant. He's going to be the next, the next Aaron, the next Evan Ferguson. Don't buy him for fifty million now and then get the money off him. Seriously, don't do that because that would ruin our chance in the future. So oh, do not bid. Do not bid for fifty million for for um, Aaron Connolly, please. <laughs> you I don't, I don't know how to follow that. Club. <laughs> I'm more and more convinced by the day that Todd Bowley tried to buy Brighton. Bloom said, "Fuck off." So he thought you'd buy it bit by bit rather than actually buying it like in, in person. Never before has anybody or anyone or any organisation missed the point as much as Chelsea FC. In every single way, they've they've see, they've got the notion that we're well run, and they thought, right, that's good, let's go for that. 
And they've systematically gone about doing everything they could to try and exploit what we have to offer and missed every single major point along the way. I'm genuinely intrigued why he brought Potter and Winstown and that sort of thing. If he was just going to look at Arsenal going for Murdrick and go like, I'm going to like add 20 million to the price. What is the fucking point of having a scouting network when all your your owner does is look at the paper, see someone's in for someone and then put 20 million out of them on the asking price? Why have a scouting network? What is the purpose of that? Your owner, throw money at things. your owner is a part-time FIFA guy. He's gone, oh, let's, let's do this and that. He hasn't got any idea what he's doing. He no. has no idea at all. And no matter how much he will try to fleece and may succeed in fleecing the Albion, he will miss the main point, which is that we've got a heart and soul born and bred of our owner, chairman, and the vice chairman slash CEO, who are the driving force of this football club. Yeah. And no matter how many people they take a, away... system that he's not can't buy. He has, a, he has a knowledge that he can't buy, and, and no one else can take that away. And that's the thing. It's like, people keep saying, where did Brighton keep picking up these players? It is Tony Bloom. It's his knowledge. And, he's t- and that's why he's taken us to, from where we were when he took over to, you know, sixth in Premier League. And it's why he's taken USG from, like, the second division of Belgian football to being they, they won the league last year despite the weird Belgian system and the second this season he, he genuinely just knows it and it's just, and it's no it's no coincidence that the other club run by someone who worked with him are also doing amazingly well in Brentford despite not spending who, who big money who yeah. knew it's, it's almost it's like they know what they're doing it's all down to him and it's yeah these people you know the scouts come in and yeah when Stanley did a good job and Ashworth did a good job that sort of thing people did did do a good job. But the, the core of this comes from... This is how we pick up these players. It's not through, you know... And ne- never mind the Albion. Every time, full, uh, every time Brentford beat Chelsea or someone like that, that's a victory for football. That's a victory for equality, isn't it? And the irony is, you know, both Bonanotte, for example, and Kiso, not that either of them are yet proven in English football, but both Enciso, of them... Kiso, Kiso. What's the Zen Kiso business? Kiso, sorry, yeah. Both of them did. We tried to sign in one window and then moved to the other window, the next one after us, and signed them. Yet no one acted in that time. I went and scouted them, seeing like you'd have thought that someone would have gone, Well, Brighton are doing really well in South America. Should we go and have a look at this bloke? Because actually he might be quite good. But no one's done that. And it's like you do wonder what it is. And it, they and still I don't want to take the risks, do they? But I mean, to Man U or Liverpool, how much? It's the thing with Casado, it's like five million to Man U, and they were favourites, and they couldn't be asked to deal with the agents and that sort of thing. How much of a risk is Casado at five million to Man U on a five-year deal, probably on apparently on three and a half grand a week if we decide? How much of a risk is that? It's it's just and it's, we, it's laziness on their part. They don't want to do it. We will continue to thrive at their expense. Yeah, I hope they don't change their plans. I mean, there are more teams buying direct South America these days. But a long time, English teams didn't. And we were the ones in England who... Benfica, Benfica and, been, and that's the other thing I see is we Chelsea bad moaning about Benfica and Brighton being the ones who are ruining football. This is the irony. By demanding these high prices, we're the ones ruining football. So yes, that, that's not Abramovich and Chelsea yeah, at all, is it? It's not Chelsea at all, who exactly under Abramovich first and then and now under, under Bowley are completely spending these fees. Chelsea have single-handedly ruined football. Yeah. I mean, we we can't get this Matvienko now because Chelsea have basically thrown so much money at Mudrick that Shakhtar basically can just go the same as we're going, basically, and being like, well, 
we basically want like a ridiculous amount of money. We're not going to pay it. So we're not going to get Matt Bianco, which is fine. I have no issue with Shakhtar putting the price up. But that is why we're not, because they basically overspent massively on Mudrick compared to what, you know, they already agreed in about 65, apparently, and Chelsea bid 85, 90 sort of thing. And it's just, it, it, it's it, basically, you're right. Pope Bowley is like a computer game. He decided he wants to go and spend all this money on a, on a football club. And they're basically circumventing financial fair play. They've literally changed the rules around financial fair play and what you can do because because by actually, you know, they've literally changed the rules to stop Chelsea doing it. And this is the one reason I wonder if they might actually end up putting an offer in that we can't refuse or maybe we can't refuse this week because they could get Fernandez or Casado on a a 27-year deal or something like that that actually moves around it now. They can't do that in the summer. And I wonder if they might spend big on Fernandez or Casado. And I mean, if they offer a hundred million pounds, frankly, we can't turn that down. Yes, amortisation. Do you know what they can amortise themselves off to oblivion? But I mean, realistically, the reality is we can't turn a hundred million down. It's it, it's ridiculous amount of money. Do you think anyone would go to that? Because because well, I mean, Chelsea can't do it in the summer, so they can't do the amortisation in the summer. They they've been they they've been the contracts have been limited to five years in the summer, so. If they want one of Fernandez or, or Casado, they've probably got a bid now. I think they'll probably go Fernandez rather than Casado, but I wouldn't rule out a ridiculous bid that they put in. And realistically, Bloom and Bloom can't turn on 100 million pounds because that is ludicrous money. And you know, mm. we're not going to go down. We're going to, you know, we have to accept that. It's every player has his price, and every club is a selling club in reality in that situation. A hundred million pounds is obscene, and it, it should never happen. But if Chelsea, uh, I, I would normally say no way anyone's going to go anywhere near that. But with Chelsea at the moment, and with the fact that they can't do the seven eight year deal in the summer, and in fairness to the Premier League, they actually have on the FA, they have reacted to this stupid system that Chelsea have done, and and tell them to piss off, and actually you can't do it anymore in summer. It's much actually more, you know, much quicker at doing actions than the Premier League are normally doing actually. Yeah, shame they don't sort out racism issues at football grounds. But they they are sort of like homophobia though if Chelsea are involved. Yes, and so from the summer you can only have five, five years. year deals. I think isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um. So which which is good to be so fair. You can imagine Chelsea putting a. I think probably what they'll do is they'll they'll match Benfica's asking price for Fernandez. Probably in reality, but. You can imagine them going absolutely all out on a player and and giving him a ten year contract or something just to piss off the FA and the Premier League and something and Bowley just to like stick your fingers up at them. Stand. I cannot stand Chelsea fans and I've I've looked at them on Twitter. The entitledness and the delusionality. That's not fair. Most of the arseholes on Twitter are ones who probably have never been to Chelsea in their life or or Fulham where Chelsea actually play or whatever or. Uh, I just want the very worst for them. I really do. And in terms of this window, in the end, ultimately, Tony Bloom, Paul Barber, they don't want any sales other than the ones they've done, Trossard, or ones that are happy to do, loans of youth players. We we don't want to do any deals with Caicedo, with Sanchez, with McAllister, with Mitoma, with Ferguson, with any anyone else. We just want to carry on as we are. We've got to wait till Tuesday when we have our next podcast to find out what happens on that score. Do you see anything happening? I don't. I honestly don't. 
I think that's the one question mark. Will Chelsea? I mean, they spend a lot of money about financial fair play and like that. I could genuinely see them offering 100 million for a player just because it's going to be much harder in the summer because they can't amortise it. So they're going to want maybe want their big midfielder now, and whether that's that might be Fernandez, I think probably rather than Casado. So they offer they offer 100 million for Casado. Do we take it? And you have to. I didn't have to. I don't see any way we can turn that down for a player who could break his leg tomorrow. but, you know, it could break his leg tomorrow or, you know, I don't think there's any way you can turn down £100 million. We can talk about Europe all we want, we can talk about this, we can talk about that, but it's just ridiculous money and we can't. And the club must have in mind if Chelsea on Monday morning offer £100 million, players they can quickly get in maybe, you know, someone who's quite decent, they could get loaning even all that video for a half season to cover for the fact that we've lost Casado. But in reality, there is... You know, everyone has his price, and 100 million is well over Casado's price. Do we tell him to fuck off at 75 mil? Not in the summer, but probably now, yes. Hmm. 75, 80 in the summer is probably about right. Uh, But yes, in the last day, the last few days of the January window, when we got a chance to go to Europe, yes, I would. I think if you get to 90, it gets more difficult. 100 is uh, unturnable, I think, probably, which is definitely a word I've made up. I love the way you throw these figures around as if we know what we're talking about. Uh, can no, I just... It's just a classic. I think you know, there are, there are you know, all these things that Tony Bloom said 100 million. He hasn't done because he, he doesn't give values. He, people just bid and he then said, maybe I'll take it or not. But I think 100 million, I mean, that's a ludicrous amount of money. Can I just say that Sky have completely compromised themselves by wanking themselves off into a stupor about all this transfer speculation? It's embarrassing. Chelsea and Arsenal and Sky, they, you've all embarrassed yourselves over this. There'll be people outside the gates of, of, of you know, kind of, 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 of well, at, the, at the Amex and at the training ground on my Tuesday waiting, going like, you know, <laughs> Brighton's lights are still on, maybe there's a deal still available. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, yeah. That might be a thing. It might be. It probably isn't. It probably isn't. I, don't, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it will happen, and I think if anyone... They go for anyone. I think it'll be Fernandez. I think probably, but they're so crazy in the money they spent that I wouldn't rule it out. I'm pretty sure they'll have one or two more signings, and you know the money they spent is. And to me, they've still not got that great a team. They've got a lot of individuals, but they've they've not really got a great team. And it's so against what Potter is like as well. He likes to develop players and to build on things, and he isn't. You know, I don't understand why they got Potter in as compared to someone like Zidane or like that. If they're just going to throw money around like that. Hmm. Right. Very quickly, Peter, to round off. Kadra, he's been withdrawn from his loan. He's gone to Birmingham City. He scored on his debut, but it was a 4-2 defeat. Uh, Looking good. They're in complete flux, but what can we say? Blackburn, his former club, um, they had 14 wins, no draws, and 13 defeats. That is an insane ratio. 14 wins, no draws, 13 defeats. Yes, to be still until the weekend. Yeah, to be still, whatever it was at that point, without with 13 defeats. Yeah. After three, seven games was insane. And yes, they finally drew, didn't they, the weekend? I think it's the longest any team has ever gone without drawing a game. Amazing. You gotta you gotta hats off to them. That's pretty good. Um also, Birmingham, we said at home to Preston, uh, that game was refereed by Rebecca Welsh, the first woman 
to officiate at that level. What do you think about that? I think I think I don't think that in any way that it matters whether someone's a woman or a man. It matters whether they're good at refereeing or not. If she's look at, if she's good at refereeing, then great. I think it absolutely with the game is calling out for quality referees and good referees because there aren't that many, frankly. So if if she's good enough to referee at that level, she absolutely should be, and she should be going to Premier League if she get if she does really well there as well because. Frankly, there's, a, there's an awful lot of dross reverie-wise in the Premier League, including Thomas Bramall and uh, Lee Mason. Absolutely. A lot of people spurring about uh, Kaoru Mitoma. Uh, a lot of Arsenal fans think that we they should have signed him instead of Trossard. Yeah, but it's funny because he wasn't available. So yes, I know. It's funny that, isn't it? Uh, it's almost like we wanted to keep the player who's better, younger, and had a longer contract. Rather than a player who's a shorter contract. It's almost like we know what we're doing. I mean, it's, that's an annoying thing of us actually knowing what we're, what yeah. we're doing. I, I wonder whether we might start looking into, you know, into Asian market more. I mean, it's like, obviously, we bought one player directly from... I know we went on loan to Belgium first, but we bought one player directly from there. We can use USG as a kind of, like, midway if we need to anyway. But, I mean, yeah, yeah it's, I love the fact that Matoma... My, 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 love, my one fact about Matoma that I love most is that he did a, a degree or did a kind of, like... Uh, Thesis on dribbling, which is absolutely genius. <laughs> yeah, he did a thesis on, on on dribbling, and he did all sorts of studies related to um, all sorts of elements to do with sporting dynamic. Genius! That is just like brilliant. Call it, yeah. Um, I've got to love the guy. I absolutely love him. One person I don't love is former Crawley manager John Yams. But he is not, I, I say not, a conscious racist. No, of course not. He, he that means unconscious. Yeah. He, he said that um, Asians, Asians, <clears throat> who, um, who have, um, I, I, don't know, I don't know what to say here, Peter. I'm, I'm being overcome with disgust. Uh, apparently, he's not a conscious racist, but he said that um, Caribbeans like jerk chicken, even though they're from Africa. Uh, he said that... Um, um, Why did he say that? But what, what conversation was he having when that came up? Well, <laughs> it's not yes. like I'm going to ask him an interview before the game or something about that. Yep, exactly. Um, he, he essentially said that all... People from Arabic locations were bombers. Uh, he, he was separating black and white factions within his restaurant, dressing room. Um, you see, to, to that, that sort of thing, I understand that it can happen in football in terms of, like, it's terribly wrong, but obviously it's linked to football. The comments he made, what, what, where is he making them? Why is he talk, saying these things? Even if he thinks them, which he obviously shouldn't do, why is he saying them? Who's he saying them to? Yeah, he kept what going on about jerk so chicken. So yeah. you guys like jerk chicken because you're from Africa. That's a Jamaican thing. What? Uh, what yeah. Why? <laughs> Where did jerk chicken come in conversation at training or whatever? I mean, what? What is it that? I mean, yeah, he's obviously a pretty awful bloke. I mean, they're fine for a joke that he wasn't like kind of. He's, he's very lucky to get away with the ban he did, wasn't he? Basically. And I think he's appealing that or has done, hasn't he, or something like that. And he's 
very lucky to get away with it. How can you define someone who says that people who are of Asian origin who have bags are bombers and then you can't say that is a racist or a... No, exactly. Just, it defies belief. Conscious racism, what does that mean? I mean, he didn't re- if, he, if he didn't realise it was racist, then frankly, he's pretty stupid. But he obviously did. Having mm. said that, Wayne Hennessy is still playing, and you know. <laughs> oh yes, Mister Mister Hennessy, you gotta love him, don't you? So uh, you know, I, I won't I won't take, go any further into that comment. <laughs> yes, yeah, so on that matter, I think we must close events. I think is there anything else to mention? Peter, have you got any more business to attend to? Uh, no, that's like, yeah, obviously a few managers are changing. I think, I think the service at about 63 or 4 now in the managers list. After 92, that's Out of like 92 since, since October or September. Oh, yeah, managerial changes. So uh, the Cowley brothers have been sacked from Portsmouth. And they brought, Joe, in, John, yeah. they brought in Mourinho, not to be confused with Mourinho. Yeah. What else has happened? Who else? Uh, Cardiff have got a new manager. Sabri, or at least he was going to be appointed. I didn't see if he actually got confirmed, but Sabri Lamushi, they, they appointed two managers already this season. They're trying to, they're trying to match Watford, basically. Um, and who else was there this week? Uh, Forest Green. Big Dunk is at Forest Green. Yes. I'm looking forward to Bristol Rovers' game for them because him and Jerry Barton could be quite an entertaining combination on such line. <laughs> Big Dunk and Joey Button. It might be one game actually Joey Button doesn't mouth off actually because <laughs> he has like Big Dunk looking down at him, a man who's actually served time in Barlini Prison, doesn't he? Or something like that at one point. Is it Duncan Ferguson served time in? Yes, yes, I think so. And there's, two, there's two D Fergusons in now in managing in uh, in, in League One because Darren's back at Peterborough in, in his general kind of like in out thing with, um, yeah, with Grant McCann, who's also been there twice now, hasn't he? Basically, kind of like revolving door between them, aren't they? Yeah, fourth time he's been in charge. Is he is he one behind Martin Allen at Barnet, or is he a head level with Martin Allen at Barnet? I can't remember how many times he managed Barnet. I think Martin Allen was five. Five. Times, yeah, yeah so he's one. He's got to quit and come back again. <laughs> I'm sure he can manage it. I'm sure he. Can. I mean, he's still got time. You know, why not give it a go? Go for the record. That must be a record. I mean, I can't believe five times at one club isn't a record. Probably not, probably not. Well, Peter, I finished off a whole bottle of wine. You've had some beers. We've talked about the game. We've talked talked to Neil. Uh, let's have a quick prediction ahead of the, the game with Liverpool. Um, we, we got the better of them with a 3-0 win. That was fantastic. However, I'm not so confident in this game. I think we're going to lose 2-1. What do you think? I'm going to be positive and go for a, a goals... Goals, kind of a game with goals, but go three-two closer than last time, but we win still. I like it. I like it. And just on the final note, uh, we are. I'm on eighty-nine out of ninety-two. All right, it's not a competition. <laughs> You're on eighty-eight out of ninety-two. You have Wimbledon to do, yeah. And then we both have. I was going to go to midweek, but they got called off by the frost and the exactly. Cold weather. We we both have Harrogate. Barrow and Fleetwood to do. Harrogate might go down. We're not sure. We're not sure. 
But we're going to do it either this season or next season. But you're going to a game tomorrow, aren't you? I am. I'm going to a glorious uh, battle of the releg- of relegation rivals in the, the conference south between Hungerford and Chippenham. Lovely. Great. Great choice. Great choice. Only an hour from Paddington, so it's not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. A bit of excitement, you know. Yep, I'm due at one point. I'm due at like a you know these games you see in like National League South and Isthmian League are like a five four or something like that. One day I'll see a five four. Probably won't be tomorrow, but I want I, I want to encourage you, Peter. But I think it's a long way to go. So the, the other big question is kick, the kickoff has already happened now. Who's gonna? Who do you want to win out of Arsenal and Man City? Assuming we go through, who do you want to win out of Arsenal and Man City? Arsenal. I think we could beat them. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I think City have got some sort of like hold over us generally, yeah. whereas, and, whereas and if, I, if, I'd be more confident against Arsenal, especially as Arsenal actually will want to win the league as well. So they want to focus exactly. on that. We'll be distracted, and I feel there's more aura that we've yeah. got over them. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I, I would say, and trust us, starting. On that note, Peter, shall we sign out by saying, "Stand or fall." Up uh, the Albion. Sports Social Podcast Network.